You're dialed in to the Cut Banks Conversation, a podcast on hunting, fishing, and conservation in British Columbia. Hey there, hi there, ho there. Steve and Don and Matt here. Here we are, episode 12, the Cut Banks Conversation. How you guys doing? The Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen. Yeah, the Dirty Dozen. Here we go. Matty, how you doing? Through the microphone at a long distance. He's doing great. Matty's doing good. He's happy to be here. Steve, you wonder how you doing, man? I'm not as good as Matt. I wish he was wearing pants. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here we are. Uh, we're getting we're going to get ready here to interview uh, President Chad Day of the Teltan uh, First Nation. Uh, he'll be here in just a few minutes. We're just getting ourselves set up. Uh, but in the preamble, so uh, let's kind of play catch up here a little bit. Uh, so a couple things going on in my life. My son turned 22 years old. Holy shit, does time fly. Happy, happy birthday, Keaton. Happy birthday, Keaton. So uh, pretty cool for me. There's a couple of reasons for that and the reason I bring it up. Um, you know, we've been spending a lot of a lot of a lot of months, a lot of weeks, a lot of hours, um, you know, bringing this podcast together um, and talking lots about hunting and fishing and all of those things. Um, you know, and for me, the the hard part is my son's finally back into hunting and fishing, and you know, on, a, on his birthday, you know, I'm thinking, you know, there's a fall coming up, and my brother's going to get a chance to spend the time with him, and I won't. So, it's cool to see my son come back into the fold and and pick up the the hunting tradition like his dad. Um, and he's also 22 years old. And I just kind of <laughs> it just it just dawned on me that he's kind of his own dude. Um, you know, and we're 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 separated by 1500k. So, um. It was, I would tell you, it was a tough birthday for me. For him. I turned 53 a couple of days before. That was okay. That was, oh, that was okay. My son turning 22, it's like the boy became a man and he ain't around for hunting season. They so. should write a song about that. Yeah, I think somebody already did. Oh, so okay. anyway, right. uh, so happy birthday to my son. Um, so a couple things that um, we're going to find some space to talk about a couple of these things, but there's a couple of things that have been happening over the last few months um, there's a significant tar call going on in the South Island in New Zealand, um, and that's a significant undertaking. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of animals that are getting wiped out um, because of their overgrazing, their competition with uh, domestic uh, sheep and goat herds on that island. Um, lots of other podcasts have kind of alluded to it. Uh, we probably need to do, you know, much like some of the other guys, we want to kind of do a little bit of research and talk about that. But, you know, the, the, the crazy thing that came to my mind, I don't know, color me nutty, and I am not, remember, we're not biologists, but part of me was thinking, why would we not try a pilot project in Canada to translocate tar to somewhere in northern British Columbia and let's see where it goes. Like, it create another hunting opportunity that, for that, ourselves. That's great, because you parallel that to the grizzlies. What's that? Yeah, 100%. You, you, you want to translate or tra- translocate well, grizzlies then? Well, okay, but here's the deal, okay? So, and, and Steve makes a fair point, because I, I, I posted today on the Cutbanks Conversation uh, Facebook page a link from eHunter. And if you want a great source, uh, eHunter.com is a great source about information uh, around hunting, fishing, conservation. Um, they have uh, largely U.S. content, but there's some international content as well. But an interesting article, um, the Center for Biodiversity has filed a legal injunction. Um, there was a request to translocate or transplant grizzly bears into the northern Cascade Range. Um, and that was met by local residents, uh, hunters, or, or pardon me, uh, local residents, ranchers, uh, just people of the area with a resounding not interested, but not interested on a number of levels. One, they recognize if you're, you know, in the livestock business that there's a chance for, you know, 
air and predation, et cetera. If you're a local resident, you're also worried about human-bear conflict. And I think that the, the, the really crappy part about that is what sort of got ignored in that dialogue because they filed this injunction when they got the no was that they're completely ignoring the the decision. You know, I think it would. I, I'm not sure if it was a public consultation or a plebiscite or how they went about it. But here's a public, uh, a well, in, in a well, um, a well um, represented public response that said, "No, we're just not interested." On the other side of that that western boundary of that Cascade Mountain Range, you find Seattle and Everett, Washington, and yeah. Tacoma, Washington, the urbanites, urbanites. So as these grizzly bears get translocated, and that doesn't know, I mean, they have large, they can have large home ranges, and they can displace, right? Absolutely. But what I think that one of the couple of the interesting tidbits I read as I was sourcing through articles was it's not just, hey, listen, we're worried about our cattle or our sheep or whether people get hurt. It's you're going to put bears in a position where there's going to be human-bear conflict, and that's going to be resolved with euthanization yeah, of the bear. It's not and the bear's fault. It's not the bear's fault. So the bear's doing what the bear does, and the bear's going to get vilified for it. So all we're really looking at it through is just a lens of this is what we would like to see on the landscape. and we're not really giving consideration for what happens downstream of that event. We're so focused on, you know, making sure that there's this representation of grizzly bears in their, you know, their historical range over time where they are no longer. I get that's a noble pursuit. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a viable one. So to your point, Steve, tar are probably not part of the North American landscape. I'm just saying if we're out there shooting a million of them and uh, there's view, can we not try test run? Just pretty. I I mean, if I never get to hunt them in my life, can we not try a test run one time? Yeah, one time out of a helicopter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then the other one was uh, you've seen in in some U.S. states in Montana, and I think in, I'm not sure if it's Idaho or Wyoming, you have a significant goat call going on. Um, And, you know, again, goats overgrazing the range, et cetera, and they need to dial those numbers back because particularly in national parks, which I think is where the... the You you saw it firsthand in uh, Yellowstone with the bison. Yeah, overgrazing. Yeah, the overgrazing. So you, you you sort of see those things. So um, there's a couple of opportunities. Again, to me, it's like okay, we're going to go out and call all these goats. And there's uh, there, I've heard a couple of interesting conversations around that goat call. Um, you know, people that were like, oh, great, this is going to be awesome. And it's like, yeah, it is. Um, if all you're concerned about is just the chance to pull the trigger. But the mm-hmm. reality is, is you're not scrutinizing these goats to find, you know, nine, 10 inch goats. No. What you're doing is you're shooting everything, you know, every you, every lamb, it goes everything. Back, it goes back to that science-based management, right? You need to pull that emotion away. They're they're doing it for a reason. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of the, the, the Hunting Collective, another podcast that we absolutely love, uh, one of the things that uh, Pete Munich was talking about from Stone Glacier was that, you know, you're, they weren't really interested in whether you were pulling the meat out, right? It's like... Oh. We're not, this hunt wasn't about that. We're not trying to facilitate, you know, a great hunting opportunity. We're trying to call a, a population. You, you see it throughout in Canada with the, the snow geese in the prairies. 100%. Right? It's, it's blast them. Yeah. Blast them. There's, there's no bag limits and whatever. Yeah. 100%. And they weren't even particularly, you know, in, in its worst of its worst, they yeah. weren't even concerned with whether we cleaned them or not, just get rid of them. Right. So, um, but it, it, it does, it begs a question to me, is it, is, are there moments in, in time and and are there opportunities for translocation in certain jurisdictions you know you know maybe not tar from new zealand to canada i don't know if that even works but you know can you take areas where we have um you know where we have herd density deficiencies in canada where you have a species that's the same can it work absolutely but 
when it depends on the species, you see it with bears. They try and relocate them, and a good majority of the time, they come right back with their ear tag, and they end up being a problem bear again. Yep. And I know in the Kootenays and in Okanagan area, they tried to translocate uh, urban deer, and that doesn't work well. A lot of them uh, pass away due, in, due to the uh, the anesthetic. Right. Okay. And, and again, they're migratory. Right. Okay. They they try and return to their home ranges. So that's uh, it. It'd be an interesting way to see. To, to research and see if non-migratory animals would translocate well versus migratory. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's been some moves with, um, you know, some caribou, yeah. some bears, and, you know, there have been certain populations that there's been successful elk. translocation. Elk. Yeah, elk. Right. If you believe the rumors. If yeah. you believe the rumors, yeah. But I just, anyway, I just thought in, in the wake of some of these significant culling exercises, if there was an opportunity, you know, across borders for us to, to look at different opportunities. I mean, it's wishful thinking on the tar. I just, it'd just save us a long drive, Steve. A long drive, long flight. Right? Long, long swim. Long swim, yeah. All right. Uh, anything else you guys want to cover before we get set up for Chad? We're good on just about everything? No, I think Maddie's got his pants on. Now we're good. You know, oh, no, we should bring this up. Uh, a couple of interesting developments at Big Bar. So, oh, right, right. So, uh, Churn Creek, uh, yes. there's a sonar, there's a sonar oh, pinging station. So about 40K up, about, upstream. About 40K above the slide. Correct. We've got 35 or 3,500, pardon me, or so salmon have, have reached that particular part of the, uh, the Big Fraser. Step. Big step. So that's a significant improvement from last year. Now we have sockeyes starting to arrive below. About, um, about a week and a half late. A week, so, week and a half late, but they're below the slide. Yeah, it's let, let's hope they can get through because, like I said, a week and a half late, and that doesn't do well for them holding in the, the back ponds there. Yeah, so we've got a lot of fish holding below the slide, but there is some natural fish passage, yes. not just the whoosh, not just the ladders and the other, yeah. you know, the other mechanisms that they've got in place. So... Um, that's pretty exciting news on the on the salmon front. So, all right, we are going to get set up for President Chad Day of the Teltan First Nation and Teltan Central Government. And uh, we're going to take a quick moment to say a few kind words about our friend Omer at Precision Optics. You know what I like almost as much as going hunting? Hunting for gear. And there's lots of places you can shop and there's lots of products you can choose from. But one of my favorite places to consider when I'm in the market is with my friend Omer down at Precision Optics in Quinell, British Columbia. So he's got this great little uh, gun store tucked in the side of Aroma Foods. He's an absolutely awesome, awesome dude to talk to. Uh, so let's say uh, you are in the market market for, you know, one of the new uh, hot what's happening kind of rifles like the new Weatherby TI or the Savage Ultra like 110 with that uh, new proof barrel that they put on there. Or maybe like me, you're in the market for a backpack. I just picked up a new Stone Glacier 5900 R3 and uh, I got it from Omer. He's got lots of that stuff in stock. Um, maybe that goat or sheep hunt that's coming up. Time to upgrade the optics and get a new rifle scope or spotting scope. So maybe you want Night Force or Swarovski or Leupold. Omer's got a little bit of everything. What I'll tell you what he has a whole pile of. Other than great merchandise, he's got a lot of experience on mountaintops all around BC hunting for goats and sheeps and other critters. And he has put all of the gear that he sells, he puts uh, to the test uh, in mountain hunting scenarios every single year. He's a kick-ass hunter, a dynamite supporter of conservation initiatives, Wild Sheep Society, absolutely loves him as do we because he puts his money where his mouth is and he puts money towards conservation 
supporting a number of events every single year. So um, there are lots of great businesses all around BC. Omer just happens to be one of my favorite people to do business with in the outdoor space. So if you are looking for something in a in a rifle, in optics, in uh, you know gear, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're, you're, you're thinking of, or if you just have questions, he's there to answer them all. So take advantage of a great facility with, with somebody with a lot of great wisdom to apply and help you make a really, really good decision. So precisionoptics.net on the interweb. Tell Omer we sent you and uh, he'll give you nothing but a lot of great advice. <laughs>
opportunities for your children. So the people that live back home, they're, they're very cultural for the most part, and they rely heavily on salmon in the summer and uh, mostly moose meat during the, the rest of the year. There's still a few people that'll hunt caribou and sheep and, and mountain goat and stuff like that. But um, did just uh, on that, I, I think I read, I was reading 80 to 85% of, of the, the, the principal meat diet would be moose in Teltan territory. Is that something, is that, does that sound right? I would say so. There's definitely some people that the vast majority of, of what they eat is, uh, is moose meat, especially amongst the, the elders. Okay. And for the people that, um, that don't leave the territory as often because they don't need to because they, they have all the food that they need uh, back home. So it wouldn't surprise me if some people uh, have a diet that's over 90% uh, local for, for their protein needs. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. Um, on that is, is a moose just, and I'm just a complete sidebar, but I'm just curious, um, cause it's, <laughs> cause it's a, it's a hunting fishing thing, but, um, moose is, have they always been in the territory? Is that always traditionally been part of, of the makeup of, the, of hunting there or are moose, uh, more recent occupants of that, of that landscape or they've always been there and always been part of it? I was told that pre-contact before, uh, you know, Europeans and others were there that um, they primarily hunted caribou and that relying more heavily on moose kind of happened in the more recent generations. Okay, okay. And and when you read the old anthropology books and stuff like that, they talk about uh, all the usage of caribou and um, of mountain goats uh, mountain goat is actually a really interesting one. There's an old transcript where one of the elders is uh, very passionate and says, you remember that mountain goat were just as important to our people as salmon because wow. they used uh, the mountain goat horns. They used the, the fur for ropes, which is the only way they could oh, cross. Wow. Okay. Uh, the only way they could cross cer- certain um, bodies of water. And then the, um, the skin was used as armor. And Taltans were a very uh, warlike people that were fighting constantly. That's why we have such a, a large territory. We we must have won most of those wars. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, I would like to think. I'm sure some of our neighbors would disagree with me, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. We're, well, we're never we'll, going to we'll know. Let history say whatever it's going to say, right? So, anyhow, getting back to the uh, the governance. So. Pre-contact, we had distinct clans in the area, wolf clans and crow clans, Chiona and Siskia. And those clans all had headmen and they had, you know, very specific roles in, uh, in each of the respective clans. They were a nomadic people, so they dispersed into their respective clan territories in the, in the wintertime and in the fall. In the summertime, everyone would come together at the Stikin River and, and, and fish the salmon as well as uh, celebrate and trade with the Clinkets. So we were really close with the Clinkets. We intermarried with them uh, quite often. I don't think we had as many wars with them as we did with, uh, with some of our other neighboring groups. Right. And basically, Taltan population used to be in the thousands. And then from the, um, the terrible diseases, the smallpoxes and in the mid-1800s, uh, other things like yeah. that that came through, um, in one of the books written about us, they said that our population was down to around 300 people at the beginning of the, the 1900s. 
and then obviously through intermarriage and a lot of cold winter nights we're now uh, <laughs> we're now back up over over 4000 i have five children myself so i'm trying to to contribute to <laughs> making it 5000 by uh, by the time i'm i'm no longer with us here it's a noble undertaking Earth. someone's got to do it some so. someone's got to do it we all we all got to do our part yeah the tcg <laughs> staff is uh, is all doing a, a great job so. is, is that is that, a, is that a minimum to be on the tcg staff you have to have five kids or you're not doing your part so well, I don't think anybody <laughs> has five other than me right now, but uh, our executive director and a, a lot of the other ones are, are well on their way. Very so, good. Yeah, Very good. Oh, it's great having all the kids together. But uh, anyhow, getting back to the governance. So that's the way it used to be. And then with all of the diseases, things had to change. So Nanak, our kind of most uh, famous chief from the 1900s, at some point, he brought everyone together and said, look, we, we need to do things differently. They had uh, one chief. He was the chief. And then thereafter, I think that the thing that really differentiates Taltans from some other groups is that just like we did for thousands of years, we were very hard workers and we adapted to our environment. Right. And when the Europeans came in and the diseases came in, our governance and our lifestyles and everything adapted so that we could survive and Taltan started spreading out you know my my grandma was uh, in Prince Rupert for a while with a lot of Taltan some of them ended up in uh, Washington some of them ended up in Alaska over in Alberta they were hard-working people that just did what they had to do to, to build a livelihood for themselves and a future for for their children and their grandchildren and so did that diaspora of them spreading out does that you, you go out in a temporary state in a, in a temporary way and then come back to, to Teltan land after, or it's just you were forced to spread out because of that's the, where the opportunity was. I think a lot of them spread out because of the opportunity, but the ones that, uh, that stayed back home and I don't know when we were going to talk about this, but a lot of them that stayed home got involved in the guide outfitting industry. Right. So the first guide outfitter in, in British Columbia was uh, J.F. Colbreth. That is my great, great grandfather, maybe three greats. Maybe I obviously three. Uh, never <laughs> met him because he was born in the uh, 1800s. But uh, yeah, guide outfitting started in Telegraph Creek, in Taltan territory, and all of the, the families that were in Telegraph Creek during those times would have been involved in one way or another. Uh, a bunch of families ended up uh, becoming guide outfitting owners themselves. Uh, we still have some. So Iska Band has a guide outfitting area. The Craig family has had uh, their area the longest. I, I right. believe they got theirs in 1950. Um, my grandparents got a guide outfitting area in the early 60s, and half of that is, is still in the family. And Taltans are, are still utilized to this day by a lot of these, uh, these guide outfitting areas. And we actually have a, an impact benefit agreement with the you know 30-ish guide outfitters in Taltan territory and they have their own organization called the the Taltan Guide Outfitters Associate. Association. Okay. So very unique uh, relationship, very unique history there and you know I, I know that different stakeholders with wildlife have varying opinions about uh, about guide outfitters but I think I can say without a doubt that uh, guide outfitting had a pretty 
positive impact on the, the Taltan nation. And to this day, I think that most people that live a, a more so-called traditional lifestyle and, and still have those really excellent uh, skills in the bush, a lot of them learned it while guide outfitting or learned it from somebody in their family that was involved with guide outfitting in, in one way or another. So that's um, that speaks to a bit of that, but Getting back to the government. government. Yeah, yeah, no, no, great segue, great segue. Yep, you're doing famously. Yep. So governance, uh, things adapted. We ended up with a you know chief and council out of Telegraph Creek. Uh, eventually, a second band was created out of uh, Iskut, and to this day, we still have those two Indian Act ba- bands that are administered under the federal government. Okay, can you? Yeah, and, and this is where I wanted to get to because I, I think that's the important delineation that, that you make is. There's an Indian Act band and council, and then you're you're going to talk about where the TCG comes in. So, right. So the Indian Act band and council, we have two of those. One in Telegraph Creek called the Taltan Band. One in Iskut called the Iskut Band. Now, the federal government oversees these bands under the Indian Act, and there's been a lot written about that, and a lot of nations and bands to this day that's their only form of governance so that's really who you have to speak to on territorial issues or you have to speak to multiple Indian Act governments because um, multiple bands were set up among certain nations because what happened was when Indian agents came in federal government came in they started saying okay we need to you know get all of these indigenous people off the land and put them on reserves so that we can control them and free up the land and basically do what we want. So some nations like Taltan, there was two bands, I believe a a nation like the Chilcotin, I believe they have four bands. And then my children are Wet'suwet'en and they belong to the Morristown band or they should belong to the Morristown band if they register under their, their mother's people. Um, and Morristown Band is just one out of six bands that is Wet'suwet'en. Okay. So Taltan recognized that, okay, we've got these federal Indian Act bands that are overseen by, by the federal government, but we want to have our own territorial government because this federal, federally imposed government is doing some pretty terrible things to us. Right. And they're making some pretty big decisions with, without us. And um, prior to, I believe it was 1986, I might have the uh, year wrong, but um, it's called Bill C-31. Okay. And what was happening was there was uh, blatant sexual discrimination in the Indian Act so that when indigenous women married non-indigenous men they would lose their their status card their distinct indian status and any children that they had would not have the ability to gain it and any children that they may have had from previous marriage often lost indian statuses as well so all of a sudden they weren't allowed to live on reserves they weren't allowed to vote in elections and they were basically told by the federal government you know celebrate you're no longer Indian, you can go and live your life with this, you know, white guy, Asian guy, black guy, whatever, a non-Indigenous person that they had married. So that was creating all kinds of uh, problems for us and, and other uh, 
indigenous people all over Canada. So in the 70s, we had a man named George Asp from the Adzertsa family. And he was the third First Nations lawyer in Canada. And he came back when BC Hydro was trying to dam the Stikine River. And the Stikine River, Mounted Zydza, Klippan, I mean, these areas are sacred to us. Right. And especially the Stikine River in those days and today, because every all the Taltans come back for it's that. It's your right? gathering river, right? So Big yeah. time, big time. And I mean, without the fish, you wouldn't have nearly as many of that 80% living outside the territory coming back home. They want to come back home to fish and gather and, and celebrate along the, the Stikine River. We still do that. So when he came back, um, he basically set up our first territorial government, uh, and it was called the Association of United Taltans. And he was able to work with the, you know, some founding fathers and mothers, and they were able to basically say, hey, everybody that's got Taltan ancestry belongs under this government structure. doesn't matter if you lost your Indian status from the sexual discrimination or if, you know, the federal government's telling you you don't have enough Taltan blood or Indian blood or whatever. You're Taltan to us, and that works, right? We're, you're, we're all going to fit under this government and we're all going to fight together to protect the Stikine and push back on some of these issues. And there was a lot of uh, ups and downs during that um, during that time. And, you know, we had our, our share of infighting between the ban governments and the um, territorial government because when, when you have minimum resources and when you're coming out of the residential school system and all of the trauma that was related to that, you're, you know, there was a lot of unhealthy people. And to this day, we still have a lot yep. of unhealthy people. So it certainly wasn't roses during that time. And there were some ups and downs with that uh, central government in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And things really became solid again back in uh, 2002 when uh, Curtis Rattree be became the uh, chair of what was called back then the Taltan Central Council. So it was the same territorial government, but uh, it had a new name, it had a new leader, uh, it had a new board structure, and as you can imagine, Aboriginal law had shifted quite a bit with, uh, with big cases like, you know, first you had the Calder case, and then you had more and more um, indigenous cases going to the Supreme Court of, of Canada, like the Sparrow case and the Vanderpeek case and the Haida case and the Tack River Clinket, all of these cases, right? So more as more and more momentum, momentum built around indigenous uh, rights and title, we got that um, central government um, back up and running. Um, and he was there for, for six years. And the torch was handed off to, to Anita McPhee, and she had brought us to, um, to you know, the next level, signing some major agreements with, uh, with government and industry. And then basically when I um, came out of law school after being in, in university for eight years and being on the uh, Taltan Bank Council for two years, I was kind of fed up with, with a lot of things. And, you know, I was pretty young and naive and fired <laughs> up and energetic and bothered by a few things going on with... Uh, right. First Nations and with my personal life and I thought you know I can uh, I can make the jump and 
and I don't just have to be one of those people on the outside complaining. I can be the change that I, I want to see and go in there and, and hopefully get some of this work done myself. So I was encouraged a, a great deal. It was the first time that the uh, election rules were set up so that everybody could vote either online or over the telephone or in person. And, uh, you know, being a, a young person at that time, just barely 27 years old. and You're being, 27 when you first became president? I was 27 for about eight weeks. Um, I'd spent eight years in university. I had five children. <laughs> it was just kind of... <laughs> There's a whirlwind of activity. It was just know. kind of the, like people think about it now and they think that's crazy but the reality is that I, I grew up really quickly at at every stage of my life so um I got voted in at uh, at 27 and then basically ever since then we uh we switched the the governance structure a bit again to make sure that all of our board of directors which are family directors they're all elected now just like um just like the executive they're elected by their family members and we switched the game, we switched the name from the uh, Taltan Central Government, or sorry, from the Taltan Central Council to the Taltan Central Government. Uh, the term, you know, the chair was was abandoned, and now they they call me the president. And yeah, we've we've switched more bylaws in the last uh, six years than I think were changed in the previous twenty, because, uh, like I said, I mean, I came in there pretty fired up to to change a lot of things and being able to utilize social media and, and bringing a lot of uh, motivated Taltan people together it's uh, it's been awesome to to see everything that we can, uh, can accomplish when we're all pulling in the same direction so when you look at those there's a lot of transformation um, you know over uh, from there's a lot of transformation moving moving from the the Indian Act Bandit Council and then the the advent and the creation of this this new body did the federal government and provincial governments did they embrace that and what's the delineation between the 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 band of the indian act governance and the the the, the Taltan central government where do they where do their responsibilities uh, and their purview where do they where do they where do they change or where do what do they cover what do they not yeah so technically an Indian Act band is there to administer the federal government dollars that flow down for the Indian Act reserve lands right. under that specific band. And then there's also monies that flow for certain privileges for those band members, like, for example, uh, education dollars. Right. So the band would be responsible to hopefully flow those education dollars to all of their respective uh, university students um, and, and stuff like that. The Taltan central government, our mandate is to represent Taltans on issues that relate back to our collective rights and title. Okay. So it's almost like a the way that I compare it sometimes is that you know the premier as their responsibility as the spokesman for the province or for the entire province, right? Yep. And then you have somebody like the uh, mayor of Vancouver who might be responsible for, you know, an extremely important uh, part of the province. Yep. So, you know, you have local leaders and they play a very 
important role. I don't want to downplay uh, their their role at all. And, and our chiefs have had to be involved for us to get uh, to the place where we we are today with our, our governance structure because they could have fought it and they could have made it a, a gray area right. that would have made mm-hmm. it tricky for, for the province and industry to to deal with. And, and quite frankly, that that's what was happening in the 70s, 80s, and 90s at different different times. But eventually we, we came together and just said, hey, if we have our own territorial government, we're going to be stronger than ever. We're going to be more united than ever. And as long as we build this thing the right way and we can build it because we can't build the Indian Act governance system. I mean, you can have custom elections and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you're still answering to the federal government and their timelines and they're notoriously slow and and difficult to deal with. So we really did something very progressive and, and built our own central government and We've just been getting it stronger and stronger with each uh, with each generation. And is there a good consensus between uh, you know, what what needs to happen when you look at you know large capital projects and areas you know, and things that um, you guys weigh in on that affect the the Teltan uh, people across the territory? Do you do you need to solicit um, uh, their approval, or is it hey we're gonna we're gonna take care of things in you know, at Iskit and Telegraph Creek and Dees Lake and some of these things, this is our deal and we trust you guys to do what you need to do and you've got our full support. Is that is that the kind of unity and consensus that that government is, has come to after, you know, all of these revisions, changes, progress? Um, is that where you're at now? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so. And the nice thing about, um, and I didn't uh, give this tutorial to you before we started, but one of the other things... <laughs> that I have spoken to other leaders and government to uh, at length is uh, about our decision-making process when it comes to a title and rights opportunity. Right. So, for example, when the Northwest Transmission Line came through, the Red Chris Mine, the Northwest Hydroelectric Projects, or the uh, Impact Benefit Agreement that we voted on um, last summer with Seabridge, we have a very, very robust internal process that basically requires us to go back to our people to in all types of settings, in all types of areas. And eventually, this process usually takes anywhere from one to three years, and it ends in a ratification vote. So the Taltan people actually decide whether or not we sign off on any respective impact benefit agreement right. to support a project. Whereas other First Nation governments and non-First Nation governments like our provincial government, right. they don't come back to us before they do a big deal like a, a Site C or say, hey, how about we all uh, ban grizzly bear hunting because <laughs> there's some people that think that's a good idea. They don't go to a, a BC-wide ratification they say, hey, we were put into these positions to, to make decisions for you guys, and that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. And with the Taltan Central Government, yes, we make a lot of decisions, but when it comes to huge decisions that are going to impact multiple generations, we believe that if it's truly a good opportunity, then we should go back to our people, go through that robust process, and at the end of the day, it, it makes um, it takes longer and it eats up a lot of time and a lot of industry and sometimes sometimes government's money. But you know what? 
it's totally worth it because at the end of the day, if you do get a positive result, it's pretty airtight. And I can tell you, there's been people that um, have been very, very angry at uh, you know certain agreements that we've signed. But at the end of the day, they're not angry at me or the other leaders because they respect the process. They respect the fact that they had the ability to voice their opposition to the people publicly on social media and meetings, yada, yada. And at the end of the day, you know, the, the nation spoke. And if 70, 80 plus percent of the nation that votes says, yes, we want to move forward with this opportunity, then at that point, I'm basically given my marching orders to, to sign on the dotted line to start a partnership with a um, specific company over a specific project. And then it's our job to to implement the agreement from there through construction into operations and you know into reclamation but i don't think i'll be around for any of the reclamation <laughs> work on any of the uh the projects that are there right now at least not as a a leader i'll, I'll hand that off maybe to to one of my boys or someone else <laughs> that uh is naive and crazy as i was when i took on this job so let just just i we've got a good segue here but I, I wanted to, so you're 27 years old. You had spent two years on the band council before that. Um, what, to, what, what took you to law school? What was that aspiration about? What, and what I mean by that is, did you, did you always see, I'm going to go off, I'm going to pursue a career in law, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to participate in governance? Or was it, I'm going to go get a law degree? Or you know, what, what's that journey about just from you personally? Not on a, you know. Just, just Chad, just Chad's deal, right? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. But in a nutshell, I uh, had a son right out of high school, and um, his mom didn't didn't want to raise him and wanted to adopt him, and I didn't want to. I wanted to to raise my son, and uh, a huge court case ensued, and. My lawyer just wasn't very good, and in, at the end of the day, the judge basically wrote a decision that kind of said, you know, this is a, a young First Nation individual that doesn't come from the best background or family in the world, and here's a, here's a um, biological mother that's already got adoptive parents lined up, and everything's kind of good to go, but this biological father's in the way. So in the end, the, uh, the judge okayed the uh, adoption without my consent. Like that's officially what the decision was, was that the father doesn't consent, but we believe that this is going to be in the best interest of the, the child in the long run. So that just kind of lit a fire in me that number one judge, you're completely wrong. I would have been an amazing father and just because you know I'm a young First Nations kid that yeah, grew yeah, up for in, sure. in Smithers doesn't mean that I couldn't have provided an amazing home and everything for my for my son or that there was a want to do it either right so yeah so then after that um, I switched goals because before I wanted to to be a dentist because my dentist in Smithers had uh, the only Escalade in town <laughs> and his uh, 
his wife was gorgeous and he had eight children or something. They all look like Macaulay Culkin lookalikes. And <laughs> I, I wanted, I wanted his life, but after I didn't uh, get to, to raise my son, I, I changed my, my career path. And then I um, didn't have to do sciences. I was able to do first nation studies and political science instead. Okay. And then um, when I learned in depth about the Indian act and the history and I started connecting all the dots around some of the dysfunction that I had seen, you know, on the reserve and some of the, the family members that, that I love so dearly that, you know, um, had all kinds of struggles, some of them from residential school, some of them from other things that it's all in, interconnected with assimilation and colonialism. Uh, at that point, I, I kind of decided that, you know, there's so many passionate Indigenous people out there that are willing to complain and, and do all of these things. And there's a lot of them that are successful, especially Taltans. But how many of them are willing to put their money where their mouth is and come home and make a difference? And I just decided pretty early on that, uh, you know, after the Taltan people had provided me with a free education, so much opportunity, my heart and soul has always been in, in Telegraph Creek. That's the only place I ever considered my true home. Um, it was a no-brainer for me that uh, that I would go back and contribute in a in a big way, one way or another. I had always planned on becoming a, a lawyer first and getting a lot of experience and then going home, but that's just kind of the way everything came together. And you know, later on in life, I might really regret it because if I am no longer a leader, I've been removed from from law for so long that oh, I'd right. probably have to take a year to go back and, and then possibly become a lawyer but truthfully even if I were to lose an election or whatever I we our people and indigenous people in general they they need smart people with capacity that get it so even though I know I could make more money and and do other things elsewhere that are a hell of a lot stressful with a hell of a lot more appreciation I just I just feel like I should be giving back to to Taltans or indigenous people one way or another because I know that there aren't that many like like me that have the experience and the education and the context to make a to make, make a, a big make a big difference and I'm trying to uh to raise my my kids the same way you know I don't want them to be leaders but I do want them to uh to contribute to either the Taltan and or the the Wet'suwet'en people the way that that I've tried to contribute to Taltan yeah but that is a wow yeah that that's an incredible (laughs) story actually that is um okay so one of the things that I've uh, admired about you Chad is um Chad's a no shit kind of guy yep um (laughs) he he recognizes that gray exists but he speaks in black and white um and i think that's one of the the more refreshing parts so let's get into and anybody listening is like okay so we've got a history lesson about the teltan and chad uh, but i think it's important to set not only chad's pedigree but what we're going to be talking about um we need to understand uh what has happened and where, where, where all of this uh, discussion has taken place because what Chad can speak very articulately about when we talk about fish, wildlife, and habitat, um, particularly in Teltan territory and Teltan land, 
Um, and he's making decisions that I think have a an enterprise view around the province that I, I think it's important that people understand his perspective, how he gets there, uh, how the Teltan people, uh, you know, interact with the land. Because what we're going to talk about next, and, and Chad <laughs> is uh, is is leading this charge. Uh, this is a this is a, a widely debated uh, topic. We're, we're going to the grizzly bears, aren't we? We are going to the grizzly oh, bears. Oh boy! So <laughs> we we go back. We've t- we've talked briefly about the grizzly bear closure. And, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about grizzly bear hunting just in a, you know, a 100,000 foot level. Um, the grizzly bear hunt uh, ends in October of, uh, or really December of 2017. Um, I guess it ended for me in October. I had a chance to shoot a grizzly bear uh, in October, October 30th of 2017. And what was interesting is in the wake of that, um, you know, we... We have a decision that is made, <laughs> uh, as Chad had alluded to, uh, by a, a leader that just sort of seemed to come out of left field and it seemed to be in, for entirely um, unsus- unscientifically substantiated reasons was not a conservation concern. And was strictly uh, a pen stroke, and off we go. And, and they did it back door. They, they opened a, a public consultation. They yep. said that it was... Uh, going to be a, a sustainable hunt they recognized that and all they wanted to do was was change the terms of it and mean but by that i mean removing meat and by the time that the stroke of the pen was done it was completely closed it was completely closed now the having said that uh the, the the liberal government had definitely tabled the same idea so i don't think regardless of whether it was the ndp or the or the liberal government i think that that was gonna we were gonna ha- be facing a grizzly bear closure so Chad, when we look at the 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 grizzly bear closure, let's just talk about in Teltan territory and Teltan land. Let's talk about the 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 current state of the grizzly bear population, the impacts that that closure has uh, for for Teltan guiding operations, and sort of some of your thoughts. And you shared some of those with me in a couple of telephone calls, and I think some of our listeners are going to be. Uh, Maybe surprised, maybe a little <laughs> slack jawed, uh, but uh, Chad's got some pretty uh, hard and fast opinions on this, and uh, I think you guys will like to hear them. So I, I saw a presentation by Chad what March after the closure, and I, I'm just curious if you calmed down yet. So I'm sitting back and just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I had to take some medication before this part. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about that. So uh, I guess a, a, a little bit of back it up. Was there, a, prior to the, I mean, I, I know it was a platform. It's a campaign platform by the NDP. This is something we're going to do, right? You know, there's there's this belief in the, in the, the messages. There is a current in public sentiment that says we don't want it. Nobody wants it. Nobody believes in it. Um, some of it was loosely wrapped around some conservation concerns in the early days, but then it be- becomes this is a social thing. But they can't. The government came out and said that we recognize it's not a conservation concern; yeah, it's a social one. Yeah, that was that was just before the bomb dropped. Was there ever discussion in a in a meaningful way, whether it was the the, the government before the government sitting? How much discussion was there with with Teltan government? Teltan guiding operations about, hey, listen, we're going to get rid of the grizzly bear hunt. How much of that were you guys involved with? Well, I can't speak to the uh, guiding operations because we're not involved at any decision-making level with right. the 
with the Tal Tan Guide Outfitters. But um, in terms of thorough discussions with our government, I mean, there was there was none. Uh, maybe at some point there might have been something sent in to our government that maybe we had our lands director fill out or something like that. But there were no face-to-face meetings with uh, the director of Flynn Row or anything like that. And I wasn't even paying attention at the time of the election. People had said that this was a platform. I, I don't remember it ever being a platform. And maybe, maybe because even if I had seen that, I would have assumed that, okay, maybe it's a platform for some areas, but certainly not in northern BC because that's a totally different yep. ball game where we... Yeah have more grizzlies than people so surely (laughs) you're not going to be protecting apex predators in northern british columbia and talk about or rehabilitating ungulate and fisheries populations at the same time that just doesn't make any sense right so when it did happen uh, i was pretty shocked and i received phone calls from taltan hunters not guide outfitters but hunters that um, I that that are never involved in politics, just getting really upset, and not upset with me, but just upset with the decision. Right. And they said, like, Chad, I know you're not a hunter, and that this isn't your area, and you're like a law school guy, blah blah blah, that's working on all this governance. But I'm telling you right now, Chad, you need to fix this because this is like a very very irresponsible decision. I'm out in the wilderness all the time. I hunt for my family. And we've never seen so many grizzly bears. So for them to do this now is extremely counterproductive because we're not seeing as many moose. We're not seeing as many caribou. We're seeing more grizzly bears, more black bears than ever before. What the hell is the government thinking? You got to go fix this. So right away, ironically, the MLA in our region is also the cabinet minister responsible for Flinro RD or whatever 20 letters they've added on yeah, to his ministry name yeah. now. Flinro RD. And, uh, you know, Donaldson knew, as a person from that region, he knew that it was a social decision that didn't make sense. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, if we were on a football team, we're not always going to agree with what the, the head coach calls. And I think that's the situation that he was in was that, his caucus and his NDP team said, look, this is important to to voters, so you have to implement this, and you may have a hard time with uh, some of the people in your region. You may not have a hard time. We never had those conversations before the decision was made. There was no heads up. This is this is coming down. I mean, it would have been nice if if Doug had given us a heads up, but none of that happened. And afterwards, I was pretty confident that we could talk to the NDP and hopefully work something out. Right. And we have been very successful in getting funding and working with them for other wildlife initiatives, which I can speak to later. But they've never wanted to move on the grizzly bear pieces, no matter how much justification um we put their way, you know, Doug just kind of shakes his head and says, I know, I know, I know my, my hands are tied. It's above his pay grade. And, um, it's just very, very sad and counterproductive because right now we need better wildlife management in Taltan territory more than ever. 
and this decision when you run it by the numbers and i know there's always going to be a lot of crazy people out there that say oh well you don't have all the numbers blah 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 well of course we don't it's a huge territory but i can tell you that when i talk to guide outfitters when i talk to taltan hunters and from my own observations which is a type of scientific data and from talking to my elders and from talking to my father who's you know 70 years old we have never seen more grizzly bears and more black bears yep. and we have never seen so few ungulates and i go up and down that highway all the time and so does he and and these people that are out in the bush the hunters i have not come across one hunter that has said to me oh there's more ungulates and there's less bears everybody i've spoken to has said it is scary out there there are so many bears we need to we need to do something about this and actually this year they we've already shot about 10 uh, black bears in the community which is um i think more than than normal and and we, when you say in the community, where exactly is it? Is one of the? Is it in Dees Lake or Telegraph or? There's been quite a few shot in Telegraph Creek because there are people there fishing, right? Okay. And what they're saying is we're not only seeing more, but their behavior is different. Okay. So we're seeing, um, we're just seeing bears that are that are more brave and and probably just more desperate because what I've been told by by the people that know hunting is that they figure a lot of the the dominant grizzly bears are, are up higher and a lot of the other ones are, are coming down and truthfully a bunch of them are, are getting shot we just don't we don't know about all of them that are getting shot and unfortunately we're at a, a stage now where i'm just getting really fed up with with the ndp on this issue so we're going to start taking uh, matters into our own hands and depending on how things go with other wildlife management decisions i mean we may even have to put our foot down and just say you know what people can stay out of the golden triangle no more mining no more any of this because at the end of the day all the gold in the world doesn't mean anything if we haven't protected taltan rights right we are taltan because of the caribou because of the moose the mountain goat the salmon all of these things it's not my job to make sure taltans have the most money if that was my job, I would just go to the government and say, cut me a check for $5 billion and we'll give up our title and rights forever and we'll just split it 4,000 4, ways. That's not my job. My job is to make sure that we can protect our livelihood, protect our culture, protect our way of life. And how sad would it be that now that we're finally getting to a place where we can have our own revenues and we have a, a functional, accountable governance system how sad would that be if we're not going to have proper ungulate populations in you know three to four to five years? Some of our wildlife uh, department folks called me the other day, and, and there's a herd up there that's that's in trouble, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't even counted for years. The government just guessed and guessed, and they to this day there's still tags being given out, and you know this hits me in a super tender place, not just because of of my position and having all of these conversations with hunters and elders. But like I said, my children are with Suetin. With Suetin used to have a healthy caribou hunt in former generations. They can't do that anymore. And when the province looks at this, and even when you have, you know, Sarah legislation around species at risk, people got to understand 
that when that herd disappears or that species disappears in a certain area, maybe to a, to a resident hunter that doesn't know indigenous issues or people, they would think, well, I guess we can't hunt caribou there. We'll go down here. But what you got to understand is that aboriginal right of a certain group or maybe two groups, if it's in an overlap area, or if it's a caribou herd that used to go over several areas, right? They have, they have lost an aboriginal right that they've had since time immemorial. We have abolished a portion of their culture that they may never get back because that species is gone. And depending on the species and the, the relationship it has with others, other animals in the area, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a, a different species that goes down next. And this is what I fear with the bears and with the grizzly bears is, is that if we don't manage hunters and predators and we lose ungulate populations and then more and more and next thing you know, you know, this, this kind of stuff can, can happen quickly, especially with um, some of the environmental disasters that are becoming yeah, more and more, more commonplace. common. And again, I'm speaking from experience here. Two years ago, over, what, 100,000 hectares or something like that burned throughout Taltan territory, burned down, you know, 40 structures in and around Telegraph Creek. I mean, to this day, I'm, I'm not emotionally the same when I go back because my family's ranch was just wiped out. You know, all of the the old saddle sheds and everything that were, there's a couple that were over 100 years old. Are gone. Yeah. I remember seeing your pictures as you're posting them. They're gone. They're gone forever. Our family cabin, it's it's gone forever. And a, and a lot of the memories and those trees, it's all gone because of, of natural disasters. And this type of thing is just going to become more common. One of the things that's interesting in this in this discussion, and you know, as a, as resident hunters listening to you, is that I mean, if we look at grizzly bear hunting restrictions as they apply to First Nations uh, harvest rights, you, you're well within your proviso. You you have a right to to hunt grizzly bears as long as there's no conservation concern, correct? Or safety concern. Or, or safety concern, right? But so there's there's no there the objection to grizzly bears isn't just you just uniquely about a, a teltan position the, the objection for you for you is it's for it also has a, a bc perspective it's like not being able to hunt grizzly bears is is a it should be problematic not it's problematic for you guys for sure but you're also i think part of what i hear is it's problematic for all of us if we, if we don't have a a capacity to manage that species because if you've taken one species arbitrarily and said we're not gonna we're not gonna actively manage that, there's the risk that you're gonna just continue to find arbitrary reasons to not manage sheep, to not manage goats, to not manage wolves, to not, and then it it's a continuous cascade. I think the thing that sometimes people miss in this is this is a first nation uh, this is a first nation leader. If you're listening to this, that's saying this is a concern not just from a Teltan perspective. This is a concern from a a hunter or a BC, a resident person in BC. Safety perspective. This is a this is a safety issue. This is a this is a wildlife balance issue. This is a broader issue than just whether or not um, you know a, a couple of people can't you know sell a grizzly bear hunt. That's not just what this is about. It's a bigger, deeper issue than that. It's not just commerce. Um, this is a this is a landscape level um, problem 
uh, that, that speaks to, to mismanagement. And this isn't just a, like I said, I want to back this up because this is not just an NDP thing. This probably would have happened under the Liberal Party. You know, this, the, the, this was, and here's the, this is the even worse part. This decision was made to appease a population that never interacts with this resource at any point. Because people in Vancouver, this is not part of their reality. People in, you know, the, the greater urban Victoria area, people in, you know, downtown Kelowna, they're never going to walk out their door and have to deal with a grizzly bear. It's not going to happen. It's not going to, I mean, if they want to tour someplace, sure, but that's not part of their day-to-day. They're not out sustenance hunting. They're not out like a resident hunter would be, um, you know, trying to recreate and hunt for something else. They're not looking at, I mean, if you, we look in the case of the Teltan, when you're trying to go out and get moose, but there's no moose calves and cows because they're being killed by a grizzly bear, they're not, if 85 or 90% of their diet is wild meat and you've got an apex predator that is wreaking carnage, right, on those populations, it's, it's zero effect on them. But it was because there's no proximity to the resource, there's no consequence to them, right? So it's like, it's a, it's a pen stroke and it's like, well, that, you know, I feel really good about that because now they're not killing grizzly bears anywhere in BC. But nobody ever asked the people that actually have to live and face that particular reality every single day of their lives, uh, you know. So when and, and one of the things that um, just to weigh in there too, that's kind of frustrating because I think when some people hear their perspective, they're going to think, well, what's the big deal? Taltans still have the ability to harvest grizzly bears. This is our understanding, yada yada, and that's true, but. This is where things get frustrating when you're working with government and other groups sometimes is that they want to cherry pick and they end up putting the onus and the burden on First Nations in different ways. Right. So if they were to say to us tomorrow, we're going to shut down hunting on grizzly bears and all the ungulates and you guys go back to managing it, we could probably live with that. But if they say to us, we're going to continually allow people to come in and hunt ungulates, but we're going to protect the apex predators that are hunting more ungulates than everybody, and you as Taltan, you're the only ones allowed to hunt those or manage or harvest those apex predators, you're putting a huge onus on us now to do the difficult work of stalking grizzlies and managing grizzly populations and dealing with with those kills in an ethical way, but you're not allowing us to manage the other pieces. Yeah. So it gets very it gets very tricky for us. And I think what we're hoping to do is we want to hopefully work together so that we we share the burden together, we share the the fruits of the labor together. We all want to have more wildlife we all want to make sure that this is protected for future generations but if you're going to tell taltan people or create a situation where we have to deal with all the predators ourselves as well as an influx of all of these people and not even do the work to have the data i mean this is just an enormous clusterfuck causing all kinds of problems yeah it does and it's not it's not fair it's not fair to um to the Taltan people it's not fair to future generations of people from British Columbia or Canada and we just have to figure out a smarter way to uh to do this and another thing I want to just quickly speak to as well because I don't want people in other areas that have grizzly bears to to take it the wrong way because truthfully 
our situation with grizzly bears is very different than some other groups. Because I'll give you an example. We know that in Taltan territory and maybe a couple other territories, we're the only place in the entire world, in the entire universe that has stone sheep, right? Right. Are we going to allow those stone sheep to be absolutely surrounded by grizzly bears? Maybe if you're on the coast and you don't have stone sheep and, you know, you they just eat off salmon and berries and you have an abundance of, of salmon, fine. You do it your way. You protect your title and rights the way that, that you need to do that. I'm not encouraging John Horgan or the minister responsible to talk to any other First Nations. But they should be talking to the Taltan. They should take our interest into consideration when it comes to wildlife management because they have so much influence over all of these other pieces that impact our title and rights around fisheries and wildlife management. Right. And uh, yeah, and it's, I I think that's the, that's the, the, the part that some people need to pause and take a beat. Um, There's, it's a divisive, it becomes divisive, not just because of the, the, you know, all of the, the, the social fabric and social context around the grizzly bear, but it becomes divisive because now you're, you've, you've thrust this decision. And when, if you get and here's the worst part, if you get heavy handed publicly, and say, listen, you know, we're going to take our matters into our own hand. And if it becomes public knowledge that grizzly bears are being killed, and that's because it needs to happen, you're going to get vilified because 100% you will um, by every Sierra Club member and all oh, of those. It. And it's great because it's, you know, hey, listen, we don't want this. And then and Chad's like, well, we absolutely need this. I got to do it. Well, and then John Horrigan gets to say, or whoever's in government gets to say, Hey, listen, that's uh, they're doing that on their own. You know, that's not our that we wouldn't advocate for that. Uh, but that's that wasn't our decision. So they're allowed to do that. So you can blame it on them. That be that's where the scapegoating starts. Absolutely. Does. And I and I think that 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 puts a, a terrible burden, uh, a social burden that doesn't need to be there. When the reality was, is it's like you've, you you take one animal, an apex predator, lots of consequence. Um, we we can bury wolves into that because they've done the same thing with that. It's like, OK, if. If, if if we don't manage those things or we restrict how they're uh, how they're managed, whatever whatever falls out from that, you know, I guess we'll just let everybody live with it, you know, because again, we're not we're not yeah they wash their hands of it we wash their hands of it I don't have to do it I mean you know, they, they we people don't want to do those things you guys shouldn't be doing that. that's a terrible thing right but what, what's the other solution there isn't another solution they have to be managed we can't just we just can't exist with them. Uh, in peace and harmony just let it just let it unfold as nature wants it to unfold there's consequences on other ungulate populations there's consequences to people there's consequences on lifestyle there's consequences on recreation you cannot excuse yourself from the role of managing wildlife regardless of what the species is and I don't care who the party is that's in, in power it's a ridiculous decision we see it south of the border in US jurisdictions we see it in Idaho we just saw it at that relocation decision in yeah, we the chatted, Cascades we, we chatted about it in the, the preamble with the tar yeah, yeah, the, yeah you have you know a 20 year history in New Zealand of you know one wildlife manager who just wants to extirpate tar for because she's got a problem with them because of commercial sheep operations right um, but you're going to kill 300,000 animals and you didn't ask anybody else in, in the island, South Island of New Zealand what they, they think. You have a few people that are represented and the rest of the people are ignored. Um, and this is a, this is a similar decision making. What sort of, 
when you look at the the frequency of the of the feedback that you get from from hunters from Teltown hunters saying, "Hey, listen, we're running into this more and more." At what point? Um, at what point do you feel? I mean, nobody wants to get to a situation like you had, you know, a year ago where you know that lady gets killed with her kid in, oh, a, in, up a in the cabin. Yukon, yeah, it you no, know, it, it's. I, I can't believe that anybody wants to wait for something bad to happen before we take action. And I and I don't. You wouldn't do that, Chad. But um, what are the next steps? Do you think, um, from your perspective, on how to get this thing? back online is it back to is it just to try to force a conversation and say we need to we need to take a look at this and we can't wait for an election we got to get this thing changed now what what mechanisms do you think you you can employ to try to get somebody to reason with you well it's definitely not going to be uh addressed before the election i mean that just wouldn't work for the ndp in a million years <laughs> i think we we all know that but i'm hoping and there's definitely levers we can pull on and, you know, I don't need to make too many threats over the, the podcast and throw <laughs> out there on the airwaves. But, um, you know, Taltan are a strong people. We have a lot of levers. We have a, a lot of things that, that we can do. But what I will say is that we're going to definitely be taking matters into our own hands with the predators because we have to. And I think one thing that's very important for listeners to know, because we haven't gone over this yet, Taltan people for thousands of years always managed predators. And they managed predators when the ungulate populations were far larger than they are today. So maybe I'll just quickly speak to that yeah, to awesome. give people yeah. a little bit of a history. So when we talk about black bears, when we talk about grizzly bears, uh, Taltans would kill both species of bears with uh, deadfalls uh, usually they would use um, beaver parts for mm -hmm. for the Tracked scent it, and yeah. stuff like that and again you look in the anthropology books they had some pretty cool setups with uh, with their deadfalls and wow. the deadfall would come down they would go in and, and spear it and Taltan are famous for, uh, for mounted Zydza and that's where we had so many weaponry um, advantages was from the obsidian at mounted sizes so we would have you know obsidian weapons and and we would kill the bears that way the other way we would kill the bears and we would utilize this for the wolves as well as with our taltan bear dogs so we had a very specific breed of a of a dog of a canine that was like a, a hunting dog and a companion and just an absolute little workhorse for us and that was called the taltan bear dog and those dogs were uh were small agile strong fearless and they would actually uh, work with hunters in the in the winter time to, to sniff out the dens and they would sometimes go into the dens get the bears out and you would uh, you would kill the bears that way uh, Taltans will eat the uh, the meat from a, from a black bear they utilize the grease from from both bears they make tools from both bears but especially the uh, the grizzly bear they would um, use especially grizzly bear parts for, for ceremonial purposes. And um, when it came to wolves, each one of these clans would, would have hunting parties. You know, there was people that knew exactly where the, uh, where the wolf dens were. And they would control the population when they felt like the wolf population was getting to, to be too much. For a couple years, you know, maybe every year. They would go out to the to the wolf dens when it was uh, when the babies were new. They had a tool. I don't remember the name in Taltan now, but they had a tool where they could yank the um, 
the wolf pups out and they would get rid of them. Sometimes they would get rid of all of them. Sometimes they would get rid of all of them except one because there's a deep admiration, love and respect for the animals and especially something like wolves. I mean, Taltans have probably a hundred creatures we could have chosen to name our clan system after and we have a clan system after wolves and crows. So you can't tell tell me that Taltans don't admire wolves. A lot of Taltans, you know, before Christianity took such a strong hold in in our nation and others. I mean, we believed in in reincarnation and a lot of Taltans still have that uh that belief that they'll come back as a wolf or they believe that they used to be wolves. But even then, we still thought it was so important to manage ungulates that back then we would we would purposely go out and uh, and take care of the wolf pups because we recognized that large wolf packs mean less ungulates. So let's make sure that the wolves are still there and they still exist and we can all coexist together, but we're also going to have enough... Uh, enough ungulates for us because they recognized as well and this is something that where i think you know governments fail today in the economy and with wildlife management they recognized that sometimes there could be catastrophic seasons and that they wouldn't get any ungulates and i've heard stories from elders where there were some really really terrible seasons either from flood or fire or whatever the case may be and i've heard you know one of our our elders who passed away. He was 99. He almost made 100. His name was Roy Kwok and he was amazing. And, and he told a, a story to our wildlife guardian around one year where they had a really tough year and they just, they survived off of porcupine, you know? So it's really important for people to, to understand that, you know, you can't just cherry pick indigenous culture and say, oh, they're so beautiful with the with the uh, dream catchers and oh it's just like the brother bear movie and I'm going to talk about how lovely and amazing their culture is and then ignore the other parts yeah well if you truly respect us and you truly respect our self-determination then you respect the whole self-determination you don't get to cherry pick and say that you respect these five things that we do that you like and just ignore the things these other we, parts so, can, so you can't sit there and say oh you know what I have no problem with Taltan people going out there and, you know, being in the woods and harvesting the animal the way their ancestors did. Oh, but the wolf and the grizzly, oh, no, no. Yeah. They're they're far too civilized to, to do that now. Well, excuse me, our people did that for thousands of years for a reason. That's why we had abundant wildlife. And today it's become so politically incorrect to do that that we're watching politicians fuck up our our populations of ungulates and fisheries all over the place and i'm not a fisheries expert either but it doesn't take a rocket scientist when you start learning about the problems that they have with sea lions it seems like the exact same thing why do you need to have so many sea lions just because people are upset if you shoot a few sea lions yep. so what are we going to do we're going to have no more salmon or only have have farmed salmon and I often wonder, like, is that what we're going to end up having to do in Taltan territory one day? Are we going to be like some places in Scandinavia and we're going to just start bringing over reindeer and you're basically going to turn us into farmers because you fucked up the wildlife and fisheries population so bad? And of course, that costs money and that costs capacity. If you just left the wildlife alone and you managed it properly, 
then we could all still hunt for future generations. So it's, it's one of those issues that, you know, I'm extremely passionate about because I don't think I or any other Indigenous leaders out there want to want to be in leadership when our people lose one of our ancestral sacred rights to fish or to ungulates because or it was, anything. It, because it's been willfully, you know, mismanaged. And it's interesting because in those parallels, whether it's a First Nations context and we talk about, um, you know, one of your rights um, to, to hunt. But if we also look at, it, it's funny that, you know, if we look at it through the lens of grizzly bears and wolves, you know, we've had in the Amanika region and region seven, um, we've had a 50 to 70% yeah. decline of the moose yeah. in, in moose population. You have a cat in the, in the Moberly Salto area, uh, you have a catastrophic um, turn in caribou populations as you do throughout, you know, Clinton and other, and some, and some of the other herds. But until the federal government finally turned a lens and said, hey, listen, because it's because it is do through, something. Yeah, if you don't do something because of the Sarah Act, now whether or not we, we, we've debated whether or not they would have the will to, to I guess, to uh, enact some of those measures uh, in Sarah. But the threat of that, all oh, of a sudden, it's attention. like, hey, you know, we got a problem with caribou. We have, in, in that bookcase over there, we have stuff from 1989 that said caribou are in trouble. And you have multiple studies. Every 10 years, you've got people saying, we got a problem with caribou. And until the federal government, you know, two years ago says, hey, you know what? You guys either figure your fucking shit out in BC on this caribou thing or we'll come and figure it out for you. All of a sudden they go, oh, you know, we need to be involved. We've had a moose problem, a significant, you know, year over year decline in moose populations in northern British Columbia, particularly in Region 7. But nobody was given a shit. But the second that you the second you showed a picture of a grizzly bear, one guy, one YouTube video, some guy shoots. I I agree. Did it look? It, were the optics bad? Bad. It didn't. It, it didn't take place here. It it is not reflective of the population that we have. We do not have a conservation concern. We have fifteen thousand. If you if you talk to Doug Hurd, uh, grizzly bears, and he thinks that number was probably wrong. Oh, definitely. It's probably wrong. significantly higher. So now it's like. You know, we got a moose problem, and the people in the Lower Mainland, are like, yeah, so. Well, it's it's you don't you don't see moose in commercials where people are uh, using toilet paper. With but the them, second you know I mean? it's a fucking grizzly bear, the second it's, it's a wolf, all of a sudden it's something it's the else. Disneyfication now of them. it's a problem. It's a disnification right? of them, right? Now they're, it's a problem. They're they're marketable. The, the the moose is for for everybody for for First Nations, particularly across the northern latitudes of BC. It's become as you, I think, almost universally from one side of this province to the other to the Alberta border. And I would suggest all the way across northern Alberta and parts of northern Saskatchewan, moose becomes the most significant for First Nations consumption from a sustenance level. Absolutely. And in this province, for resident hunters in Region Seven, Region Six, and parts of Region Five. Moose is the number one animal that everybody wants to pursue. And we're not managing for that. We're not managing for it. We're success. managing to zero. So we're managing. It's, it's, it's great. You know, exactly. Like we said with salmon, the best way to deal with salmon is not have any to manage. Then we go to what Chad just said. I guess we just go back to farm fucking salmon and we, you know, we, we bring in some reindeer to have just so that we can have something to look at. And we can all say First Nations, resident hunters, and all of us say, this is what they look like. And we can have a, a small zoo for us to all come and take a look at how it used to be. And we can, we can talk about how it was. We, you ha for, for First Nations to be able to sustain a tradition, you need the wildlife to be there, 
right? For us to be able to have it as a recreation and a tradition that we've adapted for ourselves as resident hunters, we need the wildlife to be there. We all need it to be managed actively. We need to get government to get not their reactively. To do we need something. to be out front leading. I mean, you need people to to, to make decisions in advance of when things go. Oh, wrong, that's right. Right. They, they they become sound bite sound bites and talking points after the fact. Yeah, like it. it we, 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 we manage by crisis. And, Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting is what, what I was kind of picking up from what Chad was saying. We need, a, we need to manage a structure that says, hey, let's anticipate moments of loss. Let's anticipate the fact that we are going to have peaks and valleys. We need to manage for growth. And at some point, and this is the part where a lot of people get you know, pissy and whiny in, 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 some, in some hunting circles, is if you say, hey, listen, we have to contract opportunity for a little bit. So we can grow the, this population to a sustainable level for consumptive users. They get that, you, but you don't take away my opportunity. Hey, we, we might have to have to do that. But you know where there's a lot of opportunity? You want to know in this province where there's a lot, if you want to just hunt something and it's great to eat. And, and if you want to hunt something, hunt bears. Because we got lots of them. You got lots of them all just, across the province. Bears. Yeah, just not grizzly bears. But you know, we have lots of that you could hunt if somebody decided to actually get their shit together and make a reasonable decision for wildlife. You would have opportunity. And right, we were currently harvesting 300 grizzly bears a, a Less year. Less than 300, yeah. Less than 300 a year. I mean, you could probably go to 600. And we've got, I don't know how many black Depends bears. Depends on the area you're in. They could uh, uh, do a mortality, a human-caused mortality of up to 6% in some areas. And it we just, were doing less than three. It just, and, and Chad's frustration is bleeding into my frustration. And I'm sorry <laughs> to rant, but it just, it drives me nuts that this is, this is the way that we pursue wildlife management. It is by reaction. Um, it's it, it's always by reaction. I always feel like we're managing from behind. We're never out making decisions. We've in had this conversation so many times about the wildlife managers and never given the the levers they needed. So, so Chad, perfect, anyway, <laughs> per, per, perfect world though. Okay, so that's here's the things that we're we're not doing. What do you think the things are that we could be doing? What could we do differently that's not being done right now? If if you if you had your druthers and you could say, boom, this is what Chad Day wants for managing wildlife in Teltan territory and Teltan land, this is what we want. What would you do? What, what were the changes that you would make? I suppose if it was just for Teltan territory, you can't manage what you can't measure, especially when you know that there's problems. I mean, if everything's abundant, then maybe people aren't uh, obsessing over, over measuring. But at this point, I think we agree we... It would be great to have a better statistics on on some of these uh, on some of these ungulates in the in the territory that that we don't have from the uh, the government, and we're actually doing a lot of that that work ourselves now. I would say that I would love to see a collaborative board that had the decision making authority, so that it wasn't a provincial political decision. You know, like I come from a legal background, right? And could you imagine if every time there was a high profile case, if the politicians had to make the popular social decision? I mean, there would be so many innocent people locked up constantly and there'd be a lot of terrible decisions. But in society, we've made a decision that when it comes to something like a person's freedom, we need to put robust systems in place because we can't be locking up innocent people but yet when it comes to something like wildlife if it was truly a priority 
we would be sinking more more money into this and we would be having experts make the decision the same way that we have legal experts judges making the decision in the in the courtroom right and you know there's a, a phrase in government i guess don't tell me your priorities show me your budget yeah. right <laughs> how how much money is actually being invested into uh into wildlife and there i think there's creative ways to do that i think I think resident hunters would pay more uh, on, on tag fees if they knew it was being invested mm-hmm. in. I think we could add a add a tax onto certain things. I mean, and none of this is recreating the wheel. This is just common sense things that other jurisdictions and Scandinavia and the U.S. and some you know progressive states around around hunting and, and fishing they they already do this. And it just seems like in British Columbia because the politicians recognize that, you know, the resident hunter population is less than 3% or something. And I don't know what the voter turnout is, but I'm assuming that you're lucky if one to 2% of your voters in British Columbia are resident hunters. So they know that. And at the end of the day, you know, they'll do a few things that, that look good and get them a lot of uh, positive press in the short term but at the end of the day it's just it's not a it's not a priority so let's let's restructure it and and put the decisions in the in the hands of people that are capable that make this a priority and i i honestly believe that taltans guide outfitters resident hunters and scientists could all sit in a room together and agree what are the what are the best practices and then implement those best practices. And, you know, maybe we'll argue a little bit on allocation and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, if we can argue about the animals that are out there to hunt, that's a hell of a lot better than not arguing at all because we've got nothing. That's exactly it. It's kind of like what we say at the Taltan table sometimes when we're arguing about uh, about some of the extra money. It's like, well, this is a, a great argument to be having. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> because uh, at least we have the, the extra revenue, right? So we would have to we would have to do that. We would have to get more funds and we would have to have a decision making structure. And a lot of First Nations leaders would say, fuck that. We got to make the decisions. We've been here for, since time immemorial. We've gone through enough. You've mismanaged this enough. It's got to be us. And I'm taking the position that, you know what, I have enough faith that guide outfitters, resident hunters, scientists and Taltans are all reasonable i think we could build a model and we could all be involved i i don't and if i if that wasn't working then i might come in and and be a lot more uh passionate about us taking all all control but i just think we need to remove the decision making from uh from bc politicians because caribou don't vote very few resident hunters vote very few first nations people vote and at the end of the day i'm not being cynical here i'm just being real uh, politicians make decisions based on the people that vote because at the end of the day if they do too many things that are unpopular they're not going to be there anymore okay. so fish and wildlife is the only ministry in, in bc that it hasn't seen an increase in 40 some odd years and it's it, it shows yeah in terms of funding and i mean there there's there's um there's a lot of like you said Pittman robertson and there's lots of models that we can look at that are scalable and absolutely can be implemented and but it, it comes down to anything. Anybody, if you ask me for money, um, you know, my, our friend Michael Schneider from uh, Driftwood Valley Outfitters, one of our co-hosts, one of the, you know, when we look at dedicated funding models and stuff, Michael will say, you know, moose don't need money. You know, moose need 
something. It's not just the money. It's what are you going to do with it? Like, how do you put how do you put more sheep on the mountain, moose in the swamp, and salmon in the streams? That's the you know get direct. The, don't just give us a pot of money. Give us a, a, a pot of money and a plan. But I think to your point, Chad, you if you all of us have a vested interest. If we really are passionate about that, and it's what drives you know for for most resident hunters, just like First Nations people, it be, um, hunting is part of what defines us. For the person that doesn't hunt. It doesn't mean anything to them. They've got, there's zero, whatever happens or doesn't happen to wildlife has no consequence on their life. What happens in the Portman Bridge that has consequence in your life in Lower Vancouver. What happens in you know taxation bases and and, and you know uh, how quickly is public transit and can I have Uber? Sure, that has and it, that's relevant to them. But what's relevant to us is it becomes part of who we are. I mean, I don't just look – I'm not just some guy that goes out to cowboy out and, and shoot a gun on the weekend. Hunting means something to me, and it's not just killing something. It's not just feeding my family. There's a connection to the land that, you know, has become part of – it's part of my DNA, right? And so I understand that impassioned, um, you know, uh, th- that feeling where this, is, this isn't just something – you know, it, it's cultural for First Nations and for some of us, not all of us, but for some of us, it's cultural. It's because it's because we've wrapped ourselves around it. So we're, you, you have a lot of very passionate people that have a vested interest in trying to grow wildlife, not just for the purpose of just shooting them, but because we believe that they need to be on the landscape. I do stuff for salmon every single day as a member of Spruce City. I, you know, my first, I'm, going to, uh, I'm leaving on Sunday to go my first time ever uh, fishing on the ocean. Probably the only time in the next few years. I, I've never, I'm not a fisherman. But I've been doing stuff with Steve and, and Dustin and the folks here at Spruce City on behalf of Salmon, doing videos and trying to get funding and, you know, railing at DFO. I don't fish. I'm never going to be. You'll never find me standing on this Stikine River as much as I'd like to see it. You'd never find me with a rod in my hand. It's not how I'm wired. But do I think they need to be there? They need to be there for everybody in the Teltan. They need to be here in, uh, right outside of this window on the Nechaco. I need to know that they're in there, even if I never see them. I do community cleanups. We do community cleanups all the time. I clean up spots that nobody will ever see, right? But it's because I believe in it. I know that there's a lot of people that you can recruit to make great decisions about wildlife and land level planning um, that where it matters, where the outcomes matter, and we're super passionate about it. And I think that that's the, that's the part that I think people often have missed in, in a number of debates where, where we feel that we feel threatened when we hear things like rights, title, you know, uh, First Nations harvest. We, as resident hunters, sometimes we get all wound up about those things. We charge those things with things that, that aren't there. And here's a very good discussion that has a collaborative, not just a, it doesn't just need to be a collaborative perspective, but it, it is a collaborative perspective because what, what, what we're talking about here is, we're aligned on the same things. We focus so much on where we diverge. We forget that we're, there's a lot of places where we come together. And you're right. Allocation and if there's lots of something, we can probably have some discussions about how much and where and all of those things. But right now we don't have any. You know, and whatever we have is declining. The bigger, more important discussion right now isn't, you know, that I get to hunt a moose. It's that there's a moose. Right. But and, and this is, I think, where we sometimes fall down. If I don't have if I have Chad on this podcast and I'm not interested in if I can't stand up for Chad's rights, if I can't stand up for the fact that that is it's inherited, 
It's always been there. And if I don't believe that that is true, we're never, this dialogue never gets off the ground. And if I look at guides and outfitters as the enemy, right, because they have allocation and, you know, that if I look at them as the enemy versus verse, as we're allied, you know, or, or we're aligned, we need to be aligned on the, th- on the things where we come together. And if we, if we continue to put lines and borders and walls up and we don't try to, you know, seek to be understood, right, if you want to be understood, right? So I or seek to understand, but if you want to be understood, we have to embrace the other person's perspective. And there's this, there's a great phrase. I, I don't know where I learned it, but back your brother's play. Like, you know, we're all in the same land. We're all in the same province, right? I need to be as invested in, in what, what's good for other people, you know, without throwing my, <laughs> I, I, I have some skin in the game too. But I got to be able to, to, to advocate for everybody's access, not just my own. You know, in the U.S., they, they have this big discussion about, you know, public land access. And some people say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. But 100% does. Just because, you know, in some states where you, if you're in the state of Texas and you got 5% of the whole state is, is public land and you say public land isn't my fight, absolutely it is. I mean, you, because there's still that 5% you got to fight for, right? That, and, and this is I this is one of the reasons that discussions like this to me need to happen more because what we have discovered in some of our engagement with government is when you have a room and you've got guides, trappers, resident hunters, and First Nations sitting at the table singing from the same song sheet, and that all we're saying Go- is government gets nervous. They get super nervous and they get it, it's off putting to them because they're like, okay, well, how did you guys all get together? We're all here on the same thing, man. Like, fix the problem. And we've had that discussion in this very hatchery, you know, with the deputy minister sitting in here. And they're like, how did you guys all get together? And we're sitting there railing at them. And they're saying, it's easier when you guys are all divided. It's easier when you're all fighting over the the allocation pie and you're all pissing up each other's leg about, well, they, they shouldn't get this and they shouldn't get that. It's not good when you guys are all together. And you could see it because that dialogue becomes very, when you talk about robust, that's very robust. So it's like, hey, listen, we're taking all of our differences and we're going to stick them off to the side. We'll always have differences. Let's just accept that. But here's one thing that we can all agree on. So anyway. Oh, oh yeah. When they wanted to know uh, who was sitting at the table, when you had the table going, it was, oh, God. Yeah, exactly as you said. How did you get together? Yeah. They didn't want to know what we wanted to talk about. We need they a were... guy like Chad to take over for Oregon. <laughs> How do you feel about running provincially, Chad? <laughs> Uh, I get that Chad question a lot, actually. <laughs> I just I'd have to think about it. But, you know, when, when you get back to this thing around the model as well, a lot of times I always think back to the, to the guide outfitters because, again, they have a, a vested interest and there's so much money in some of those hunts, right? And when we talk about like, oh, we got to build the pie and government's not giving us the money, I mean, geez, we could sell these, these grizzly hunts for what, like 20000 30000 a pop? If Taltans were in charge, if I was in charge of that tomorrow, I'll tell you right now, I would say next year, give 100 hunts to the, uh, to the outfitters. Because either we're going to go and shoot them, which is actually going to cost us money, right? Or we can give 100 to the outfitters, do the math. I believe 30,000 times 100 is what, $3 million? Yep. Mm-hmm. $3 million? What could we accomplish with $3 million? in in Taltan territory right maybe give a discounted hunt on uh on black bears could shoot 300 of those no problem i mean they are they are everywhere right and of course we have to employ best practices and like i said we gotta we gotta make sure that we can 
we can start uh, measuring these things, right? And I know that, I don't know, honestly, I don't fully understand why people get too wrapped up in the guide outfitter thing because maybe I just think about it a bit differently, but I think there's so many places in society where we really inflate the costs on certain people that are competing with other things and then it pays for those things. A good example is like university, you know? We'll allow international students to come in here and pay four or five or whatever times the amount because that's a huge boost to the university and then the university expands and then there's more students and there's more everything for everybody, right? Yep. You can do the same thing with the, with the guide outfitters and with, with ecotourism, I, I think. And, you know, I, I said this the other day and my mom said, you shouldn't have said that, but I'm going to say it again <laughs> anyways. We can edit this for his mom. Because, uh, you know, I, again, like I, I'm not an avid hunter or anything like that, but I'm trying to think about creative ways to make sure that we all have more wildlife, okay? And when I think about how can how can we, as Taltan people, take care of the predator issue ourselves if we're just gonna be on this hamster wheel? Like we can start freaking out and blockading and, and doing all of that kind of stuff. I don't want to do that, but if we have to do that, we can do that. I also think maybe there's a model out there where we can do predator management as an ecotourism thing. I was over in the Philippines one time, I was visiting somebody. She couldn't believe that I was so passionate about going out in the boat and going fishing. And I said, oh, I don't want to do nothing. <laughs> I, just I don't want to touch the fish because I don't know, like I haven't even seen some of these things before. So I don't know what's poisonous. I just want to be there to be part of the experience. Right. And I was thinking to myself, are you telling me that if I was a Taltan hunter and I advertised to the world, come with, you know, Taltan hunter into the wilderness to hunt an apex predator. You don't have to shoot, you don't have to touch it. You just you come with us. Our crew will take care of you. We're just practicing our our Aboriginal Taltan rights. We're going to shoot the grizzly. We're going to gut it up. We're going to use it for the ceremonial purposes. Bring the hide back. Do everything we would normally do, but we're going to do it in front of an audience of Europeans, Japanese, whoever, whoever it may it may be. You can make a whole bunch of money doing that. And Absolutely I'm I'm only good. saying that because maybe there are some avid hunters out there that are never going to be, or I'm talking to indigenous people, some avid indigenous hunters that are never going to come up with the $3 million to buy the guide outfitting area. Well, guess what? A lot of people will pay you just for your skill set to go out there in the wilderness because nowadays in the world, it is more and more difficult to just get away from everything. Yeah. And you yeah. can at the same time help your people with the predator management, help boost ungulate populations. I mean, I'm telling you, if I was a, if I was a hunter and I had the skill set, I would already be doing this. And then somebody said to me, they said, well, if you did something like that, Chad, the controversy would be off the charts. And I said, yeah, you, th you think that it's going to bother me <laughs> if this is in the newspapers? Put it in every single newspaper in British Columbia and Canada. You know how much more money I'm going to get to charge to take the That's next right. crew out on Grizzlies? Yeah, exactly. There, there's a market for something like that because not too long ago, there was a, a guy in, he went to Africa and he paid something like $75,000 US to dart a rhino. Remember? Remember yeah, that? yeah. He yeah. darted a rhino just so they could do the just so the, they could do the, the study on it. They did just, just to do, just to drill the horn. That's yeah. it. They did cord, you know, blood and, yeah. and all that stuff. Seventy five grand. 
Yeah, I think you're onto something. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's a genius idea. I'm kind of, I, I wish, in a way, I wish that I, I, I didn't share it with the world because people are going to be doing it. But we you know what? This. It's okay. They should be, they should be doing it. Like if this is what we need to do to create a new business to make sure that we manage predators and have ungulates in the future, then, then all the power to you. And you know, these yeah, people I'm, can I'm, look I'm, me up in 20 years and be like, you know what? I am a millionaire now because <laughs> I heard this podcast. I had the skill set. I've been doing it. It's been going great. And like, thank you so much. And I'll say, well, hey, as long as you guys still have ungulates and you're doing your thing, like I'm proud Listen, of you and good we'll, for you. We'll, we'll do a new TV show. We'll call, I know it, the- we'll call it Grizzly Den. And it, <laughs> it, it chatted. We'll, we'll, we'll have a panel and we'll look at new ideas on how to do ecotourism and wildlife management creatively. So well, I know they do uh, trap line tours. Uh, well, right? yeah, but you just for go sure with a trapper. Yep, absolutely. And Michael Michael uh, does yeah. a couple of those a year where people pay. They'll go out on the trap line. Um, I don't know if they. I'm not sure if they can shoot anything, but I nope. think they can go through the experience. They can and go through the experience, and at the end, they get uh, a couple of furs. Yeah, they yeah they get they get yeah. uh, they can take the permits to take the furs home. So yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, and to be clear, because we didn't go over this earlier, for those listeners, Indigenous people, they don't have the commercial right under provincial right. and or federal law to um, to sell, you know, the animals that, that they harvest unless there's a an agreement in place with their First Nation government and, you know, the province or something like that. It's all that but, deleterious commerce, yeah. But what I'm saying is that I believe there's definitely a gray area where you can have people tag along Absolutely, while yeah. you practice those rights. I mean, are you kidding me? People from Germany or, or Europe, like how, how amazing would that be if they could just go out with you? They can help you cut up the moose. They can help you hand it out to elders. It'll be the highlight of their life. Yeah. You know, and I, I've, I'm getting excited. I've, <laughs> I've taken, I've taken people back home that are really passionate about wild salmon. And again, this isn't, this isn't something that I commonly practice. I've worked on, on fish a bit, but I've brought some, uh, you know, non-native people back and they just help. They don't take the fish mm. or nothing. They just help. And I tell That'd you, man, blast. they, they just, their lives were changed forever. Cause it's just so, it's such a beautiful territory up there. Mm. And like, just to be able to to handle a wild salmon now as sad as sad as it, it as yeah. it is it's it's just a rare thing and when you talk about you know putting things in a museum and saying oh well, that's the way it used to be i kind of already feel that way with some of the fish cuz i have a picture on here uh, i could show you after the podcast with uh, one of our elders and he's you know 5 6 or something and he's got a king salmon oh. that thing's got to be three and a half, four feet Jeez. and you know you just don't see them like that no, anymore you don't. No. because they're going to be taken out by the sea lions or the commercial fishermen or whatever the case may be right so we're already in that kind of situation but i i do have I, i'm still young enough to have hope that we can yeah, change we can this around it. i think by the time i'm 35 i'm going to become one of those cynical miserable first nation <laughs> leaders and then it's time to uh i'm there already to move on to my ecotourism business with grizzlies but uh <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Okay, Chad. So I, I watched a video a while ago. Um, it was it was pretty interesting uh, that dealt specifically with uh, jade mining uh, and placer operations going on in Teltan territory. And you took matters into your own hands 
and grabbed a hel- helicopter and decided that you needed to do something about what I've come to learn is uh, some, some wildly unregulated mining operations that were taking place in the jade industry in Teltan territory. Can you talk a little bit about, um, this is sort of my way into to talking about how industry should operate in on Teltan land. Uh, there's a process, and obviously that process was circumvented. Yeah, like, like how industries impacted the land base type thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, with the jade example specifically, you kind of have to backtrack and Aboriginal Law 101. There's always a responsibility to consult with Indigenous people. And then if there's an impact and a company or the government is utilizing the land in a way that is having a permanent impact and someone's making a profit, then there should be accommodation, meaning there should be some share of benefits, whether that's ownership, employment, revenue sharing, whatever the case may be. Jade mining in Taltan territory and up in Casca territory is a complete clusterfuck for everybody. Okay. And I say that because there are other industries that the province makes a lot of money on. Maybe they don't share as much as Indigenous people think they should. But something like jade mining, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, because it's so deep in the woods in Taltan territory. There's only a couple spots in all of British Columbia that have it. The Ministry of Energy and Mines has much bigger fish to fry. And I brought this up to them a while back because I made a trip with my wife, who was not my wife at the time, but we made a trip and we were in Thailand together. And I had heard about this gigantic jade boulder that had come from Taltan territory. So I wrote the person that kind of told me about this and they gave me the big long name of the um, the temple where it was at. And I couldn't believe it, and I shit you not, a block and a half from where I was staying. Oh, wow. Of all the places that I could have been staying <laughs> in wow. Tha- in Thailand's capital, and I was right. a block a half, and block and a half away. And then I went to this thing, and the whole temple was being renovated. So all I could do was go to the book and souvenir portion and there were books and books written about this Buddha. So, of course, I pulled out one of the books and I started reading it. And there was a whole story about how one of these monks had a dream and this boulder was pulled out of a riverbed. It says it right in the story. Like, <laughs> oh, we just, it was pulled out of a riverbed way up in Northwest British Columbia back in 1987. Ironically, the year I was born, that's why I remember it so well. And then Wow, these worlds really do converge in this story. And this is a, a huge boulder. I'm talking gotta be around three meters high. Wow. This boulder. Wow. So at the time, back in eighty seven, um an Asian guy from Thailand bought this thing for six hundred thousand bucks. And then he brought over some Italian carvers. I don't know why, because I believe there's a lot of amazing Asian carvers too, but this is how the story went. So they brought over a whole bunch of um, Italian carvers, and it was so big that they wanted to to carve out the Buddha statue with the with one of the gods cross, crossing their legs. So they cut off a piece for for that portion, and they made a, a goddess out of the smaller portion, 
And then the, you know, three meter portion is this, uh, this Buddha that's got his, his legs crossed. So this whole temple is built around these, these two pieces. And it says right in the, the pamphlet there that just with the revenue from the pieces left over, because there were some pieces right. left over and people felt it was so sacred because it came off of this right. Buddha, they made back all their money and then some. And ever since the late 80s, when this thing got going, the, um, the temple has expanded and expanded and expanded because people from all over Asia go over there to see this thing. Now, it was the late 80s. Aboriginal law wasn't what it was. Right. But who knows how many stories you have like this where jade boulders have yep. been taken out of Taltan territory. And uh, I can guarantee you back in those days and t even today, it's not regulated in a fashion so that the province, let alone the Taltan people, receive any kind of revenue sharing on this whatsoever. What happens is these jade operators pull all of these stones, all of these boulders out of the ground. They chop into them right there with big saws that they have there, and then they check the grade. And if the grade is good enough that they can find a buyer, then eventually they'll ship a bunch of these uh, stones out. They'll put them on a flatbed, take them all the way out of the wilderness. And they have camps out there that nobody would, would ever see because they're miles and miles off of the, the main highway there. And I think there's different access roads in and around Dees Lake. And then they bring these boulders over to Stewart and they'll either ship them to Asia or they'll get them down to Vancouver usually and they'll have some kind of a, an auction. Nobody knows how much these operators make, but we know for a fact that a lot of these stones have gone for over a million dollars. And if they find a really big, beautiful stone, you can even see this on that, uh, that Jade, Jade Fever Jade. show. Oh, okay. They'll, they'll bring in buyers from you know Asia on a helicopter and say, hey, this is the, you wanted mm -hmm. something like this and they'll just look at it. They'll have their, you know, gem expert there. They'll give them the thumbs up and they'll say, okay, I'll give you, you know, 600,000, a million, Jeez. whatever the, the case may be. Right. Right. And I'm sure there are jade operators that don't always make money, but at the end of the day, it's extremely unregulated. So when we went out there and from the horror stories that I had heard before, I, I had to go out there anyways. Sure enough, you know, there are fish bearing streams, equipment goes goes through those no problem there's all kinds of abandoned equipment and they don't need to follow the same set of rules as say mineral exploration with um you know mineral exploration companies putting drills in the ground we have a robust system in relationship with most of the mineral exploration companies and of course if there's ever a mine one day we're gonna have an agreement a robust agreement in place so that benefits come back Something like jade mining is pretty small scale, pretty out of sight, but cumulatively, yeah. it has a huge impact right. on the land. And if you go out there, you'd be, you'd be horrified at areas where, you know, a lot of wildlife used to be, and there's thousands of large boulders now on the landscape that have been, you know, cut open. And I can only imagine what would happen with people that used to snowmobile in these areas? I mean, I guess they just need to know where yeah, yeah. where the boulders are and where the, these, these camps are. We've had situation where people 
um, many of which aren't even Canadian, are out there working at uh, at operations owned by by Asian you know business people, most of which based in in Vancouver. Whether or not they spend the majority of their time there or not, I don't know. But uh, there's been multiple infractions. We made noise about this for years. When I came back from that trip, you know, a couple couple years ago, and even before that, uh, we were making noise about that. But after I came back from that trip, I just took that as a sign from above, and I just said, "There's no way that we can allow this to to continue." And you know, the problem's like, "Oh yeah, come to our G to G table. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it." Well. I don't have that kind of personality that I'm going to be on a hamster wheel. I have too many things to do. And if, when you're talking about a territory the size of Portugal, although I'm extremely proud that I've taken our government from four staff members to 30, it's still extremely difficult for 30 people Mm -hmm. to oversee that. So when you're wasting my land director's time and her staff's time on this hamster wheel talking about jade mining, and this is something that's costing Taltan issues on the ground and BC's not making any money from this either? Like, what the hell are we waiting for? Yeah. Let's shut this thing down or robustly change it so that you benefit, we benefit, and we're not leaving behind all this reclamation BS on the ground. Like, it's absolutely crazy that this type of uh, nonsense has been able to go on for so long. And this is where it's really important for you know the average person that doesn't understand Taltan politics or the things that we do sometimes is that you know when that video first went up, some of the comments from people that don't know us like, oh, those fucking Indians are always trying to shut down operations, blah blah blah. And it's like, well, first of all, we have supported over three billion dollars worth of projects in our territory mm-hmm. like in the last few years. Secondly, I'm trying to save you as a British Columbian and the pr- provincial government and ourselves. We all need to change this the same way that I'm trying to change this piss poor wildlife and fisheries management. It's for all of us, right? And I was going to speak to a, um, an example earlier because I was thinking about this quite a bit because, you know, people people really struggle with trying to understand indigenous rights and title, right? And the way that I was thinking about it, because I try to explain this stuff to my kids a lot, right? And the way that I was kind of explaining it is I said, you know, imagine if you had a mom and a dad and if like you were always raised by your mother and she was a really loving person or something like that. And then all of a sudden you had a dad that just kind of came in from nowhere, kind of like a stepdad or whatever just completely disempowered, you know, your mother treated you guys bad, blah, 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 blah. Well, at the end of the day, you still have two, two parties there, right? And I think of indigenous people as like that mother, you know, that person that, that needs to be empowered and take that, that power back again, because they did things really, really well. And maybe that dad in that situation isn't going anywhere we need to be able to find a a situation where we can co-manage in british columbia it needs to start with co-management whether or not first nations take on management altogether that may be scary to some people but then all of a sudden when they agree with them 
they'll say, oh, that's great. And I'm already running into this now. And it's a good segue for later on when we talk about this COVID stuff. So when I was out publicly speaking on this grizzly bear stuff before and how important it was to manage predators, oh, Chad's amazing. Oh, Chad should be the next premier. Chad for MLA, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then when I said, you know, it's really important that we keep out Taltan hunters, resident hunters, and we really cut back on the, the aviation guys and the guide outfitters because it's really, really vulnerable up in the north. Well, all of a sudden, oh, my God, this guy's a jackass. We can't support these indigenous people. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're trying to stop our right. And it's like, well, hold on a second. I thought, I thought you liked the decision over here, but you didn't like it over here. So now we're, we're, we're right back to square one. We need to have... We need to figure out a way in this province where we can respect two parties yep. yeah. and be real about what the impact is has been historically. But more importantly, we need to look to the future. And I think we need to empower Indigenous peoples so that they can get that, that power back. And, you know, I guess if that stepfather in my analogy, I don't know if it makes much sense, is always going to be there. Well... We need to figure out a way to do this all together, but we need to we need to empower Indigenous people, and I think that especially with the um, fish and wildlife community, they will they will learn quite quickly that if you could empower and work with Indigenous peoples, that's a way way better plan than trying to work with the province because the province knows that caribou don't vote. First Nations rarely vote, and there's not that many resident hunters. hunters. So we we got to get to that uh, to that place, in my opinion. But I can only speak for for Taltans and say that I believe that we're at a at a place where we could build and implement a collaborative model with others. And other nations may not be there yet, but we should help them get there because I think that would that would suit the best interest of fish and wildlife for all parties in the long run. I th- yeah, and I think you, uh, you, there has to be a jumping off moment. And a lot of that becomes trust, right? So, I mean, if we're, if we're, if everybody's always waiting for the other shoe to drop, you never get anywhere, right? You just, it, there's, there's nothing genuine, there's nothing authentic in an engagement if you're always suspicious of the other person's motive. At some point, even in a relationship between people, right, um, there has to come a moment where you let your guard down a little bit and say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to put myself into this and I'm going to say uh yeah I let, let let's get somewhere let's 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 work together on this thing let's build something and you know I I I I know it's tough because everybody's worried about you know what you can't see on the other side of it you can't everybody's worried about what you know what's the real intention you know what's behind the curtain you know what what's the other ulterior motive um you know, so so let's pivot on that a little bit because you, you you were when we look at how you conducted yourself in the in the jade operation, you went in, you you said, hey, listen, like you guys are out of here until we figure some shit out, right? Because right now uh, you're you're doing it, and we weren't consulted, and happens to be our our land, so you you got to leave. But what you were saying was, I'm not saying you got to leave for forever. We said we got to put some boundaries. We're going to put a box around this thing. So we, we know what we've got. And that wasn't a 
get out for forever. Let's get out until we get some understanding, right? So that this is a that, that this relationship becomes reciprocal on some level because right now it's not. This is a one-way extraction. See ya. We talk a little bit about this this philosophy, this idea. I believe that when you're looking at um, land policy, wildlife policy, there's extraction and there's exchange. There needs to be both. You're taking something out. You got to be. There has to be an exchange between with the land and with the people that are on it. Right? Has to go both ways. So it's funny that the extension of so you, you the COVID closure, which is is a real thing uh, that you need to do. I mean, it, COVID mothballed industry all over the place. I mean, I, I just posted everything. <laughs> everything. I mean, it changed how we do business. I mean, Matt and I are in a you know we, we are in a couple of car dealerships. Um, we have people that don't want to do business with us because we wear masks and have plastic guards, and they don't like how that is, and it's changed the interaction. The COVID forces some very difficult decisions on businesses. It forces uh, decisions on people's interactions. Um, You just recently, I I saw you had a funeral. I know lots of people that have had funerals, whether they're First Nations or otherwise, Mm -hmm. where you weren't allowed to go. There's no funeral. There's no no in-person grieving process. I have friends that have a wedding that they want me to come to. That's not going to happen. There's just, there are some realities that come with COVID. Are they perfect? No. You know, are they going to be uncomfortable? A hundred percent. But it's a real decision. The shitty part is somebody would look at that, you know, the optics of that, and they say, okay, well, this is just about, you know, uh, keeping people out so we can't go hunt sheep and we can't go hunt goats or we can't go, you know, fishing or tourism or whatever. How about it's just, I'm trying to keep my people safe, right? I have to, it's, it's, it, this is a protectionist measure. Absolutely. But for good cause, it's a, it's 10 hours. I've, I've never been there. I know it's a long freaking drive, right? You got hours and hours and hours of driving. You have a very remote medical system that's, that, that's not designed to deal with people from the outside. It's probably under-equipped to deal with people inside, depending on, on what the, the, the level of, of urgent care would be. It puts too many pressures on that. I, I don't know how somebody looking at that decision can make the extension that it's not a realistic ask to say, hey, listen, till we get this COVID shit figured it out, Let's just hit the pause for a little bit. Like 2020 for anybody that's hunting, it's not going to be it's not going to be a banner year for most people outside of your outside of your own home area. It's yep. just I think we got to cozy up to that. I'm telling you, I took a look at 2020 with my business plan at the dealership. I thought, man, this is going to be a great year. Well, it sure as shit ain't. It's going to be. I'll be lucky if it's half of what it was supposed to be. The shit didn't work out. Get over it. Move on. Build a bridge. Get over it. You know, I just, I think it's bad that you got, you got a lot of negative shit that got thrown at you. I've read some of those comments online. I took personal umbrage with them. And I mean, Chad and I, we didn't know each other prior to this podcast. Um, but I took umbrage with him because I just, I, I thought it was ill-placed. Right? Absolutely. Because people aren't, they're, they're reading it. They're reading way more into it than what's on the table. Right. Well, and the crazy thing is, uh, again, very similar to Jade and, and wildlife a lot of the reasoning behind this as well is about the safety of other people. And I admit that Taltan central government is continually evolving. Sometimes at the board table, we talk about how we're redesigning the plane while it's in motion and building on this <laughs> yeah. plane yeah. while it's in motion. And I was not responsible to oversee things around health and safety but I wasn't responsible for wildlife in the beginning either. Mm-hmm. We just took on fisheries uh, recently 
Right. So I'm really excited for those two to start working together because obviously they're extremely interconnected. And only recently after COVID and various incidences that, that happened after that, did I realize just how vulnerable, how vulnerable and how terribly undersupported our health system was out there. So before COVID, the average medevac out of one of the, the Taltan communities was 16 hours. After COVID, it's been over 20 hours. So if there's ever anything serious that happens on the highway, that happens with the hunter, that happens with anybody in one of the communities, whether they're Taltan or not, we're talking about a medical system up there that's been so piss poorly managed that we have doctors ready to quit and freak out and go to the media because they are so frustrated with the lack of capacity up there to take care of people. So it's interesting because when people actually look deeper into this, the, the reality is that I care about everybody that's in Taltan territory. We had, was it last summer, those psychos from the uh, island yep. killed yeah. somebody? Right. How long do you, do you think the, that person didn't even have a chance? There's no cell service up there. If you have a satellite phone and you go hunting, I mean, that that's great. But even, even at that, you know, when one of those uh, 3,000 grizzlies on the mountain attacks you and you call from your satellite phone, well, yep. you might get to a hospital in 16 hours if you're lucky. If it's the average and with all the extra complications out in the wilderness, you're probably, you're probably looking at, at more time. We'll see. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the float plane that brings you out there, I mean... Maybe they can come get you if you happen to to get in a very bad accident right next to the lake, but that's probably unlikely. Like people don't understand how vulnerable we are up there because again, it's like we're in British Columbia, British Columbia is awesome, it's amazing, it's this rich province. Yeah, it is, but in Taltan territory, you're pretty much on your own and you can get to the doctor in Deese Lake and you know, hopefully they can they can save you, but there's no ventilators in Deese Lake. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's absolutely insane how bad the medevac system is up there. And it's very sad because, you know, I, the, the province continually holds up me and the Taltan central government as like almost like a poster child for this amazing relationship between the province and indigenous people. And, and I really like Oregon and I like the NDP and I liked a lot of people from, from the last government and we were able to achieve a lot of things, but we need to deal with this health and safety stuff. And it, for it not to be dealt with during COVID is just a whole yeah. other level of disrespectful to us and a whole other level of risk to absolutely everybody that's there. Resident hunters, you know, people on the highway, Taltan people. And we have been consistent for months and we've been telling Taltans and non-Taltans, this is not the year, you know, stay away from us. And, and another thing just to throw on top of this, we're on the Alaska Highway. So there's one group of Americans that are allowed to travel through. And where the hell do you think they're traveling through? They're traveling right. through Taltan territory. 
to get to Alaska. And they're not bringing all their own fuel. So yeah, we're trying to put things in place with the local operators and stuff like that. But you see what I'm saying? It's like you've got all of these risks building and building and building on each other. And if tomorrow there's a COVID outbreak or something or somebody gets COVID and they, you know, get into those dangerous symptoms, well, hopefully the helicopter will come and get them. But is there going to be a second one and a third one if other people in the, like, this could just spiral out of control so quickly. And, and it's sad because, and I, I am going to mention it, you know, like recent, I, I gave BCWF a, a heads up and I said, look, there's all these risks, yada, yada. And, you know, I'm hoping that you can help spread the message in a good way with your people or with your, um, with your constituents and your members, because we just feel like we have to do everything we can to kind of limit the the hunter community, the Taltan hunter community, the resident hunter community, the fishing community. We actually have a an initiative going on with the Galore Creek Mining Corporation. They have a crew catching hundreds of fish and making sure that they can send it out to elders and other people that would normally come into the territory. So we're practicing what we're preaching. And unfortunately, you know, BCWF's response was, well, what about what about guide outfitters? Well, the guide outfitting business is getting hammered big time. Um, you know, they're doing a little bit of, of work, and I, I'm told they're they're taking a few um, discounted Canadian, rate hunters. Yeah, Canadian Canadians. hunters. Yep. And the aviation um, company too. We we've spoken with them, and I think in law we call it proportionality, right? And it's not it's not right for resident hunters to compare themselves these other groups that could be losing businesses it's not right for indigenous people to compare themselves to these like all of us are in a different situation right it's it's proportionality and i can tell you many many taltans like myself recognize that it's not imperative that we go home and add to the risks so we're not going home i mean this is going to be the first summer in my entire life that i have not been in Taltan territory and I'm the fucking leader of the whole nation. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. My dad turned 70 years old and I didn't get to go to his birthday party in the nation. My children and I have a lot of traditions out in the in the territory and we don't get to do those things, right? And a lot of our people aren't aren't able to do this. And then some resident hunters are, you know, phoning or trying to phone me and writing me messages and threats and all this stuff because their inconvenience that I that they got a they got a tag and that we're trying to do this like it's just it's just ignorant and it's just really really sad and a, and a huge reminder of why we need to work out a better co-management system with the province not just on wildlife and fisheries but just around basic things like like health and safety like every time that it, there's hunting season up there in the future when there's no more COVID, they should have a medically equipped helicopter Absolutely. nearby 24-7. In fact, they should have multiple because there's still mineral exploration. There's more mineral exploration dollars spent in Taltan territory than the rest of the province combined every most years, expenditures, because... That's where the minerals are at, right. and it's very expensive to bring in the drilling it's companies. A, it's about mitigating risk, right? So, you know, can you, uh, 
if you look at Haidegui, this is the interesting part. You know, Haidegui had how many? 13 or 14. Yeah, so they bloom up. How much How much outrage was there because people couldn't go and hunt black-tailed deer? I didn't hear any. You know, how much outrage was there because they couldn't go fish? Yeah, exactly. Right? I didn't. I didn't hear any. Right. I get it. It's. It's. You know. And. And it's not just. And I don't want to just pick on sheep hunters. It's just. It's people that want to access. You know. Uh. Those areas. It's Batsy and places like that. So I. I get it. You know. I get. I get that your hopes and your dreams are built around that. I hundred percent get it. Um. You and I were supposed to be. Uh. In. In. In a month, you and I are supposed to be in South not, Africa. Not even a month. We'd be coming yeah, home in a month. We're supposed to be hunting, and that's just. I mean, you know. I hated to do it to Steve. I just, you know, Steve and I are going to be hunting together, you know, or we're best buddies and going to South Africa together. And it's a hunt of a lifetime. Guess what? COVID killed that dream. It ain't going to happen. Um, so best thing that we will get is we'll get a chance to get out and hunt together this fall. Is it ideal? No. Um, you got to make hard decisions, but you're making decisions that are beyond you, right? You're making decisions for an entire people. You got, you have, you know, you have constituents just like everybody else does. Um, you have decisions that you're making for, but you're also making decisions for people on both sides of that line. It's the wellness of the people that you don't want to put them at risk and you can't put the people that, that you lead at risk. Um, and you have to make contingencies. And I, I think it's fair ball to say, listen, you know, in risk management, we're going to say, okay, here's some risk. And, you know, when I talked to Scott Ellis, when, when Steve and I talked with him, we talked about, you know, how they were going to manage risk for clients if somebody would let them run gutting operations and they had, that's a pretty isolated, you know, you're in, you're out, you're on a plane. There's not a lot of interaction. They were trying to put themselves as much in a vacuum as they could with those interactions with clients on both ends of that. Um, so there was, I think there was some good considerations made there. Um, industry's got to go around, you know, you have some emergent services, but you have to make decisions that are, that are right for you because at the end of the day, um, those people are all of your responsibility because it, it, it all of the shit will fall on your head if it goes right whether it goes right or it goes wrong you're the leader so whether you you do it and nothing happens you know they'll say yeah it was a waste of time and if you did it and it did happen you say chad you didn't take enough for, you you didn't you didn't you weren't diligent enough how reckless uh you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't i think you made the right decision by doing what you did so kudos to you man it's not an easy decision to make it just isn't you know um we we've had to make some decisions this year that we we fucking hated at our at the dealership, you know, laying people Here too. off, right? P- laying people off when you know they need the job, and you know, Matt, you you watched us, you know, agonize through those decisions. You know, you don't want to lay people off, you don't want people not to be working. We've yeah, lost, we, the, you know, we did it with Spruce. We had our our fiftieth anniversary this year, biggest bank whatever. Had to call Les Stroud and say, "Sorry, buddy, you're not coming." We got to, everybody's had to take the hits. It's, it's, yeah, it's, this is less than ideal. And I mean, you know, in, in your case, Chad, you're, you're, you're leading in absentia, (laughs) (laughs) which that's not an easy thing to do. And like you said, there's, I think people should be reminded that it's not just what they're giving up. There's lots of people that are giving up, uh, in, in Taltantori and outside of it. So, um, okay. I think, Chad, you've done just, uh, it has been a, like, not just a good conversation. It's been awesome. It's been a lights out conversation. It's, uh, we have covered some, you know, not just good ground. Um, it's been exceptional ground. Uh, great perspective. Um, great eye opener. Great education for, me, for, for, I think, all of us. Maddie, would you concur? 
Matt, you listen to all of these episodes. You just listen as they kind of come together. And then Matt will listen to it two or three more times as he edits. But uh, how are we done? It's been great. This has uh, been a super informative episode. Yep. Uh, lots of stuff coming to light. And um, really good conversation on some really important and polarizing topics. Yeah, I think that's the... And that, you know, some of them are polarizing, but they don't need to be. But they, you know, but we hear them and then, you know, people tense up. And... Uh, I would, I would tell you that I was nervous when we, you know, when Scott said, hey, I can connect you with Chad. And I was like, I really want to talk about things like rights and title. I really want to have this conversation. And Steve and I were like, yeah, but we fuck it up like everybody. And it's like, <laughs> you know what? Let's just, let's wade into it because it's a conversation we have to have. I have to have. I'm super glad that you're the guy that's been able to, to steward us and shepherd us through the conversation. Uh, this is your story, not our story. Um, you know, but it's something that we needed to, we need to seek better understanding, uh, and understand the reality for tell 10 people, tell 10 territory, tell 10 government, um, a first nations perspective that, you know, we can only, we can only witness, we can't experience. Um, it would, this is a necessary conversation. I'm hoping as we move forward that we can have Chad back to talk about more wildlife stuff. Uh, and more about that collaborative process. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully on the other side of it, at some point, there's going to be no COVID. There's going to be a vaccine. And I'm going to finally get a chance to get up into Teltan territory at some point. Hopefully that's possible. And get a chance to, to see what all that looks like. I'm probably not going to be the guy doing the salmon fishing, but I would certainly like <laughs> to explore that and spend some time in your territory. Maybe, maybe, okay. maybe book an observation journey. Oh, yeah, like an observational grizzly bear hunt with Chad. I think I, I think that's awesome. Uh, Chad, uh, any final thoughts from you? I guess just to wrap things up, I would uh, say to listeners that regardless of what happens with the province and a lot of the mismanagement that's going on, we're still going to do everything in our power to empower ourselves, empower our people, our local community members, our urban Taltans, we, we still are going to do everything we can to make sure that we manage wildlife with the tools that we have. We wish we had more tools. We wish that our wildlife guardians and land guardians had the uh, enforcement to discipline people, Taltan and non-Taltan, that, that break rules, Taltan and non-Taltan rules and laws and regulations. We're going to be managing our own predators because we have to. We're not just going to sit here and piss and moan about the province and watch them manage our ungulates and, and other important species into zero. We're going to go out there. We're going to do something about it. I can tell you that once COVID's over and I'm up and down those highways and I learn the skill set necessary, I'll be taking out grizzlies constantly if I feel like that's the right thing to do. And I'll be posting about it too. And I will be creating controversy because people need to have this conversation and start doing things, keeping our future in mind rather than just talking about it in a soundbite. We are doing a lot of land use planning right now. We're definitely making sure that we protect those areas that are most important to our ungulates and to our salmon populations. I know Taltans have a reputation for being able to navigate some tricky economic opportunities. And some people believe that, you know, we do too much mining or too much economic activities. 
it's very important as a First Nations people to have the finances in order to look after yourselves and your own priorities. It's just like an individual. You know, if you're broken on welfare, it's pretty damn hard to do the things that you want to do. You're extremely limited. But once you've got a good job and you've got the revenue, you can start to to do the things you want to do and start to position your life the way you want to position it. We're at a stage right now where we're starting to position our, our governance and our priorities and, you know, getting our, our Taltan Heritage Trust and the foundation set up. We're doing a lot of really exciting things with, uh, with wildlife, with fisheries, with our growth. And for anybody that's been patient enough to listen until now that uh, <laughs> is Indigenous or works closely with Indigenous people, I, I just want people to know that uh, I'm always happy to to share our successes and our failures. Because at the end of the day, just like I said, when you guys kind of asked me some of those personal questions, I, I wasn't expecting. But uh, just like I said, I mean, I, I really am passionate about reconciliation with um, with other groups. And one of the things I, I didn't say, but I, I want to reiterate that I always say to listeners is that, you know, reconciliation has many components. You got to reconcile with yourself first, especially if you're a leader, if you're a father, if you're a mother, whatever. You got to got to deal with yourself first. With Indigenous people, the internal reconciliation work has not happened in a lot of communities. And they're so unorganized and there's so much lateral violence overwhelming them that they can't achieve reconciliation with other neighboring Indigenous groups or with industry or with government. So... We always got to work on on that. And even when we feel we've achieved a good place of internal reconciliation, we, we need to need to continually manage it because we need to be united and, and strong to have a have a strong position. So I'm always here to uh, to help out as as best I can. These guys reached out to me to to do the podcast and. You know, it took a little while, but we just uh, we made it work with my with my schedule, and I'm happy to try try to do that with uh, with other groups that that feel that they could tap into to TCG's story or to my capacity. I I just want to make sure that we we do a much better job with fish and wildlife management and managing this relationship between Indigenous people and others. So I thank you for the uh, for the opportunity to to speak and you know I would love to to come back when we have a new era amongst us and hopefully this uh this COVID-19 thing goes away sooner rather than later because I know it's been it's been tough on a lot of people and prayers to all those those Taltan people and non-Taltan people that are are mourning the loss of uh of loved ones because it's um it's been really difficult not being able to to gather for for people of every color and creed during this time and I have a lot of good friends and family members that are that are struggling during this time so I appreciate that yeah, we do well uh I think the um I think that that uh you got some people that are pretty lucky to have you in the the driver's seat it's uh you know it's great leadership um requires you know great decisions it requires a certain level of veracity uh tenacity uh some vision um, you know, and a, a, not just, a, not to be cliched, but not just a can-do attitude, but somebody that gets shit done. 
you know, and sometimes that meet, you know, make it, it's in the car business. I tell people, I mean, you know, some, you know, for me to, to lead you properly, you got to hate me 29 days and love me on payday. Um, you know, so, you know, may, <laughs> maybe some people have to, to, they have to sometimes hate the decisions that you make, but they'll, they'll, they'll love you on the other side, you know, when, when things, uh, when things, you know, pay off and the, and the land looks the way that they want it and you get your wildlife populations in order. Uh, and you get the right, you know, the right benefits for your people. So keep leading the way that you're leading, man. Fierce leading is the only way to do it. And you're doing a dynamite job. Uh, so Stevie, anything from you? No, appreciate your time. Good seeing you again. It was awesome. Well, that is uh, it for us here at uh, the Hatchery and River Road. Thanks again to President Chad Day of the Tel 10 Central Government and spending uh, a couple of quality hours uh, with us here on the Cut Banks Conversation. We'll talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.